Chair, we're ready. I'd like to call this meeting of the City of Sacramento's Law and Legislation Committee to order. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank you, Chair. Council Member Gehr? Here. Council Member Jennings? Here. Council Member Kaplan? Here. Chair Valenzuela? I'm here. Vice Mayor, would you mind leading us in the land acknowledgement and pledge today? Please rise for the opening acknowledgement in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisenan people, the Southern Maidu, the Valley and Plains Miwok, the Putwin and Wintun people, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe, may we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today in these ancestral lands by choosing to gather together today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation of Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Thank you, everyone. Please uh, face the flag, salute, pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Two. All right. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here today. We have a pretty active agenda as become our practice since I've taken over Law and Ledge. So um, hope everybody's nice and snacked up and ready to <laughs> come, come with us. Um, so if you want, are here to make public comment on an item, I just want to make sure everybody knows that the forms are in the back there. You need to fill them out and submit them to the clerk um, before we start public comment so that we can get you up here and make sure that you're called um, in the order that it's received. So make sure you do that if you're interested in any particular item here. And without, with that, we will dive right into our agenda. First up is our consent calendar, items one through three. Do any of my colleagues have any questions or concerns? Moved and seconded. All in favor, please say aye. Aye. Any opposed or abstentions? The motion carries. Do we have any public comment on that item, Madam Clerk? Chair, we have no public Okay, meeting. good. <laughs> awesome. All right, so digging into our discussion calendar, item four, ordinance amending various sections of chapter 15.104 of the Sacramento City Code relating to floodplain management. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, is the presentation ring? Oh, there it is. Good morning, almost afternoon, chair and board members. Uh, my name is Neil Joyce. I'm from the City of Sacramento Department of Utilities. I'm the supervisor over our development review and floodplain management section. And today I'm here to give a very brief presentation on the changes we're proposing to our floodplain ordinance, uh, chapter 15.104. So to start, I just wanna give a general background. The city has the following goals and requirements related to floodplain management. The first is to protect life and property from flooding. We also regulate development within floodplains in accordance with state and federal requirements. We have a goal of maintaining the city's eligibility under the National Flood Insurance Program. Additionally, we maintain, our goal is to maintain eligibility in FEMA's Community Rating System Program, also known as CRS, which allows for property owners discounts on flood insurance. And finally, we require new development located within, a, within the special flood hazard area to be designed to minimize the risk of damage in the event of a flood. 
In order to meet these goals and address these requirements, the city has previously established our floodplain ordinance. Based on a community assistance contact from the State Department of Water Resources, input from FEMA, and our own use of the floodplain ordinance, we have determined that an update is needed, making minor additions and revisions. So now I just kind of want to go through what those revisions include, what the changes are. So first, we're adding some definitions that were missing from our previous code re revisions. Uh, we, we're adding a definition for alteration of a water course and encroachment. We're also clarifying an accessory structure within the meaning of the regulations refers to a detached structure. And we are updating references to FEMA bulletin numbers uh, regarding floodproofing methods. We've also added flood hazard reduction requirements by specifying information that must be based on civil engineer and land surveyor work and harden a requirement that requires that accessory structures must not result in an increase in base flood elevation by more than one foot and remove the local administrator's discretion to otherwise allow improvements if the administrator determines any resulting increase would be negligible. Additionally, we have some other proposed proposed revisions to the statement of purpose. We have minor edits for cleanup and clarification. We also added and clarified statements that this regulation is required in order to participate in the NFIP, National Flood Insurance Program, and more clearly, clearly listed the benefits of that program. We also made revisions to the flood hazard administrative, administration and evaluation section of the code by making changes to the, the description of information required for applicants hardening the requirements that the development must not result in flooding of another structure or increase the base flood elevation by more than one foot. We also added a permanent record retention requirement. And finally, for Zone A99 regulations, we deleted out of date and unnecessary references to the number of residents and a dollar amount of property subject to damage. Other than that, all the changes were very minor in nature and didn't affect the code in any realistic way. Uh, so I'm going to open up for any questions and feedback there might be. Thank you. Nicely done. Are there um, any public comments on this item, Madam Clerk? I have no public comment. Great. Thank you. I'll turn now to members of the committee. Councilmember Kaplan. Thank you, Chair. Just a couple of quick questions. Um, on page one of the report on the issue detail and analysis, it talks about how the city must comply with higher floodplain standards than the NFIP to maintain the class three rating, which gives business and homeowners a discount. Yet right below it, it says we're adopting um, uh, regulations that are consistent with the NFIP. Um, those two words, higher doesn't necessarily mean consistent. Can you confirm that what we're actually adopting is higher than required by the NFIP? So we're not really changing how the ordinance functions or operates. We're more just clarifying. Uh, it does comply with NFIP and it also does implement higher standards. It all, it's already in the code. Perfect. Just making sure that we can maintain that. Um, so by clarifying, are any additional um, homes or businesses able to qualify for that 35% reduction in floodplain insurance? No, this is separate from our CRS program activities that we participate in. Um, so as, as long as we can keep that class three rating, uh, all, all um, business, businesses and residents will still qualify for that discount. 
Okay, and then as we are certifying um, and our, our levies and becoming more compliant uh, with flood management, is it at some point in the future that an item is gonna come back to city council which will take us out of the A99 designation? Can, does it have to be comprehensive or can we do it piecemeal? Uh, well, the goal is to do it comprehensively. Um, and yes, we would like to come back to council once the levy improvements are done and FEMA has certified the levies and uh, we have provided all supporting document documentation needed for our internal flood basins or drainage basins. Mm -hmm. um, once all that's been reviewed by FEMA, the goal is to have them redesignate the, uh, the Natomas area uh, from A99 to Shaded X. And that would trigger a council item and um, that would trigger code adjustments. Okay, I'll follow up with you because while I understand comprehensive, if there are ways that we can certify certain parts now which would benefit homeowners and, and companies, I think finding ways to save them money now uh, versus a comprehensive which may take another year or two, um, we can have another discussion because I know this is different, but I wanted to just confirm and then you can confirm that SAFCA because we're working on our levies and everything else, this doesn't mess with anything that's going on. Correct, uh, we've confirmed with SAFCA. Perfect, then I am okay with this. Is that a motion? It's a motion. Alrighty, Vice Mayor Guerra. Yeah, thank you. I, would, I will second that motion and you know, uh, many of us have, have levies in our district. Uh, you know, I think just about every council member has levies in their district. My, I have a, a river that cuts right through in between my district on both sides. So I appreciate the work on this and I know we've, uh, uh, we've taken a lot of steps forward um, in, the, in many iterations of this. So. Appreciate all the staff work on this. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Seeing no further comments from the committee, um, we have a motion and a second. All in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed or abstentions? Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Um, now moving on to our second utilities item today, item five, ordinance adding section 13.16.1252 and amending section 18.52.010 of the city Sac Sacramento City Code related to storm drainage development fees. I'm just gonna skip to that part next time so if that's okay for all right, thank you, go ahead. Uh, good morning, committee members. My name is Pravani Vandia. I am the Director of Utilities. Um, I'm here today to discuss the Department of Utilities proposed storm drainage development fee ordinance, which is part of our overall effort to update and adjust our utility uh, development impact fees. Some background, um, the city currently has water and wastewater impact fees, but does not have a storm drainage development impact fee. Development impact fees are one-time fee paid by the developer at the time of their building permit issuance. These fees mitigate the impacts of the development project on our infrastructure systems. These fees differ from our utility rates in that rates are paid by individuals or businesses who are currently connected and using our system. Existing customers' utility rates are used to fund projects that help existing customers such as repair and replacement of our existing infrastructure and do not support the expansion of systems for new uh, users or developments. Over the last several years, the de department has updated its water, storm drainage, sewer, and combined sewer system nexus studies to determine the appropriate development impact fees necessary to fund infrastructure construction projects needed to sustain the growing development of the city as projected by the city's general plan and general plan update. 
Based on our nexus studies, we determined two things. One, the establishment of the storm drainage development fee is critical. And two, adjustments to the current water, sewer, and combined sewer system impact fees are necessary. Without adjustments of the development impact fees, the city's financial capacity to fund major water, sewer, combined sewer, and storm drainage infrastructure projects will continue to be eroded, and we will not be able to keep up with the pace of development. The proposed ordinance before you will establish a storm drainage development impact fee. This fee is critical to ensure new development within the city pays its fair share of the cost for facilities needed to provide services to accommodate growth without adversely impacting current service levels in our drainage system. The establishment of a storm drainage development impact fee will provide the funds necessary to construct storm drainage infrastructure projects and sustainably plan the necessary next steps of the system to meet future development needs. I think it is important to note that this fee will directly impact our drainage system that channels stormwater out of the city and away from our neighborhoods. This is a critical fee for a flood-prone city such as Sacramento. The secondary ordinance change we are presenting before you is the amendment of the city's fee deferral program ordinance to include a new storm drainage development fee to the list of eligible city fees that can be deferred as part of that program. We understand the financing of larger developments is complicated and a new fee may require adjustments to future performers. So we have worked with the Community Development Department to ensure that developers will still be able to use their normal financing tools, including the city's fee deferral program. The department consulted with economic and planning systems to prepare development impact fee nexus studies and assist with our stakeholder outreach. And we consulted with MMS strategies to coordinate our stakeholder outreach and engagement. The department has taken great effort to engage internal and external stakeholders on the proposed establishment of the storm drainage development impact fee and the adjustments to our other development impact fees. On this slide, we have outlined our outreach efforts. We have had 11 meetings with developer groups, including Northern California Business, uh, sorry, Building Industry Association, also known as BIA, and many others. There are about 26 different groups that we met with. We also encouraged stakeholders to submit public comments by the end of June. We received four written letters of comment DOU has evaluated the comments received by stakeholders and we have refined portions of our Nexus study as a result. The updated Nexus studies and response to comments will be posted on our project website. As we are nearing the end of this process, our next step is to move the item forward to Council in October for review and approval. When we bring this item before council, we will also include the request for approval of the water, sewer, and combined sewer system development impact fee adjustments. DOU staff recommends an effective date of January 1st, 2024 for all development impact fee changes. That concludes my presentation, and I'm available along with various staff who are subject matter experts in the various areas to answer any questions or receive feedback. Great, thank you, Pravani. Uh, Madam Clerk, do we have public comment on this item? 
Thank you, Chair. I have two speakers. First is Chris Norm, followed by James Ellison. Chris, if you can come to the podium. Good afternoon, council members. Chris Norum, North State Building Industry Association. Um, we represent the builders that build thousands of different units um, in the community every year. Uh, we're seriously concerned about this and the scope of it and the increase, um, which is in some cases 1,000 to 1,500 um, percent. Most builders would never build in a pro forma analysis that would look at a project with these kinds of increases that could, and so unfortunately, um, I have to report that this could actually jeopardize hundreds or even thousands of units that are in the pipeline. Um, we submitted an independent analysis, um, and I haven't seen any response from uh, the staff on our analysis that we took several months to complete. Um, it's possible they sent it to me, and I haven't seen it, but we have not had any meaningful discussion about it. Um, and I, um, apparently this is going to be up on their website, according to the uh, director here. Um, soon. Uh, we do understand that the city has to invest in its infrastructure, um, and I submitted a letter uh, going through suggested criteria for how we could phase this in in a meaningful way. Um, also have not seen anything in the staff report suggesting um, any reference to that, but our suggestion would be that if the developer or builder has coverage under SB 330 state law that's supposed to exempt them from drastic policy changes like this so that they have certainty that that would be covered. Um, my other suggestion would be that if a project has submitted improvement plans or grading plans, which means that they're ready to go, that they would not be subjected to this fee, which their pro forma clearly would not have anticipated. Uh, my letter also suggested that we have an implementation date of 2025 so that they would have um, time to um, contemplate these changes. So happy to talk to the council and staff about some of these suggestions and continue to work on this. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is James Allison. Good morning, uh, committee members. My name is uh, James Allison with the Midtown Association, repre representing 1,200 properties in our central city. Uh, our mission is to make Midtown the center for culture, creativity, and vibrancy in Sacramento's urban core. I'm here today to express a few of our concerns with the proposed DOU fee increases. We understand the importance of upgrading city infrastructure to accommodate for a growing population, as municipalities must be able to provide their residents with the most fundamental of needs. As staff has reported, these fees have not been increased in nearly 20 years. And while this point has been made as a justification for increasing fees today, its result is removing one of the very few elements that actually incentivizes development in the city. Further, these are not in any sense of the word modest increases, in the central city alone raising by more than 100%. By the city's own calculations, a 200-unit apartment building in the central city would see its fees raised by over $700,000, a 115% increase from the current fee structure. Understand that we are not having this conversation today in a vacuum. Right now, the city is considering adjustments to its mixed income housing ordinance and the general plan update, both of which will bring drastic changes to Sacramento's development landscape. This landscape is not just one submarket, and policy must be made with respect to the diversity of challenges faced by the city. With the city developed, when the city developed its central city-specific plan, this was the objective, identifying the unique challenges presented to the grid and developing a comprehensive plan catered to its needs. When evaluating this new fee structure, we should place this model of thinking at the forefront, not blanketly raising fees to their maximum justified amount. Fees should be applied accordingly and applied to their level of need. 
Additionally, it is the city's responsibility to identify alternative sources of revenue for these projects. Each year, both the state and federal governments pass massive comprehensive infrastructure budgets with funding opportunities spe specifically de dedicated to addressing the challenges sought by this proposal. While these grant sources may be inherently inconsistent, these should be the default first sources of new revenue with any potential fee increases made to offset that difference, not the other way around as is laid out here today. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Chair, I have no more speakers on this item. All right, let's turn to members of the committee, starting with the Vice Mayor, Eric Guerra. First, uh, thank, you. <clears throat> thank you, Madam Chair, for, for uh, agendizing this. And I want to first uh, thank all our city staff and our um, utility folks. Uh, again, you know, critical, our, our previous item is uh, important that we manage uh, our infrastructure. And uh, we're unique in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that we have not only our combined uh, sewer system and um, that has had its challenges and We've made some uh, uh, necessary upgrades over McKinley Park and other areas that um, uh, to help us during the uh, areas of flood and managing our stormwater runoff. And then we also have uh, areas that are part of the sewer, uh, Sacramento Sewer District, Regional Sanitation District. So we don't have a, a very simple way here of managing all of our water. Um, and so it, it is necessary that we, we move forward in this. And, and it's been 10 years since we've actually adjusted the fees. So that, that therein lies part of the problem. 20 years, 20 years. It's 20 years? Yeah, 20 years. And uh, I know we had looked at this right before the pandemic. And, you know, it, in increasing fees is never a good time. Um, so let me say that right there. I think, uh, you know, it, it's never a good time. But we need to make sure that it, that it happens at some point. The, the challenge we have here is also recognizing that as this council has always evolved and looked at how we adjust our ordinances and our laws. We also tr have had a, um, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say a written policy, but a, an understanding that to provide certainty for, um, for folks in the community, that it's important that we respect those that are in the pipeline and that we not change the rules on projects that may take five or six years and so that there's never any understanding of how to actually get a project through if the laws continue to change when they start a project. So those are, I think, the two main um, issues that we have here is uh, there are a number of projects that have been on the pipeline. There are hundreds of housing units that are ready to move forward, uh, but that could be drastically impacted here. Uh, there's also no free lunch. Like the, the, the infrastructure is not going to build itself. It's not going to grow on, on its own as, as much as we want the... The, it, to, it to happen um, so uh, but but uh, so I think we're almost there and I think we're moving in that direction but I I think that it's imperative that we also respond to the concerns that were raised on SB 330 so Madam Chair I'm going to move a motion here to direct staff to go back and meet with the industry partners uh, and uh, come back with a, a proposal that one um, uh, recognizes uh, those in the pipeline uh, and uh, come back with the solution of, of what the delineation of what's the beginning of that pipeline. If they're already in through a project, then let's find out what's the appropriate one. I don't want to sausage that up here in the, on, the, on the dais. Um, and then uh, second, um, uh, clear determination uh, from, the, from uh, the city attorney's office on, on SB 330 on, this, on that, this aspect because it is my understanding that there are some legal standing that may occur. So even if we said today, let's send this to the city council and approve all the increase all at once, we might find ourselves in, in, a, uh, in litigation. 
um, and to come back to this committee before it comes to council. I'd like to look at the language before it moves through that. So that's my motion, uh, Madam Chair. I think that it's important we get this done, but um, getting it done right is uh, the right way to go. So. Could I um, ask, um, Vice Mayor, if it's okay if staff, I think you were looking at the SB 330 issue. Could you give an update on your analysis of that? That's correct. Uh, we've worked with the city attorney's office and, and staff has um, ideas. We haven't made a final determination on, on what we're going to do because there is uh, an exemption that's allowed within uh, SB uh, 330 that would apply uh, if we were to request it. And so um, I'm going to ask Cheryl to add a little more to that response and we are hoping uh, to have a final response in terms of whether we're going to ask for that exemption or whether we're going to move forward allowing uh, applications by developers for SB 330. Uh, we hope to have that decision by the end of this week. Do you have any more to add to that, Cheryl? Okay. All right. And I, I will just add that I think, um, and so there's a motion on the table, but commentary before we go to the next here, that obviously we want to give as much lead time to developers as possible if a fee change is imminent. And so there's a certain tension between our next meeting not being until October and the fact that I hear, I know staff's trying to think. That, so just wanting to put timeline on the table for us um, before we move to Councilmember Kathleen. Thank you, Chair. Um, Pravani, just quickly, um, one of the questions was whether skip and bold uh, bond funding is still uh, available, even if we adopt that. Can you confirm that that is? That is correct. Um, those are still available to developers. Um, none of those are eliminated from the process we're going through. And then on SB 330, um, I would like to lend that I would like it to be considered as an option uh, for the city of Sacramento um, in regards to certain vesting protections. And then um, as well as, you know, uh, a majority of the development in the city, um, you know, is North Sacramento, Natomas, and in the south, my friends in district you know, seven and, seven and eight have a fair amount of the growth, and it's our new developments who are funding the upgrades for our critical infrastructure. And my biggest concern is there's a balance because uh, whatever happened the past 20 years, neither here nor there, but we as a city need to do a better job in our due diligence. Um, fees are never a fun thing, but we got to do better and not say it's 20 years between looking at um, the justification uh, to make sure, because you have all in council heard me say infrastructure, 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 uh, not sexy, but something we we need to do. Um, there, There is a balance. I do know that the development community has had a heads up. Um, this is something I'm very familiar with because every two years, school districts do a developer fee update and, and analysis and fees go up. So it is normal and normally that is a, you know, 90 to 120 day uh, notice of implementation of, of new fees. I... Um, would like to see that specifically in Natomas, we got earth moving and people who have already put in their grading plans and improvement plans. I would like to see them grandfathered because I know how long it takes to get to development. Um, it's even harder sometimes than school construction, which I do in real life. And um, 
added fees kills projects. And so we're talking about the need for more housing um, for our community, and so it's the balance. How do we do that? And I think projects that are imminent uh, should be grandfathered in specifically those who have submitted grading plans or improvement plans, because I can tell you they've already invested millions of dollars to get to this point, have done their pro forma, have their financing in place. Fees like this would blow it up, but I also don't want to create a grandfather such that individuals take advantage of it and no project comes to fruition for five or ten years. There, there's a balance. Um, I hear you, Vice Mayor, on, on your concerns and your motion. I would wondering if you would uh, consider a friendly amendment because um, our dear chair is packing these meetings and we have a lot on our agenda. And our city staff, I trust our city staff. I know that they are gonna work uh, with our developers, but I'd like to see them work on the issues we're in confirmation with but the next item come come to council instead of coming back here because it may not come back here until 2024 whatnot like yeah I, I, fair, I, fair I, point i and and again uh, you know <laughs> or eight hour meeting i mean no yeah and i don't want and, and so the reason i bring it back here is because i don't want our council to be coming to an eight hour meeting that but that's fair point i i will accept that and i think we're you know we've done a lot of work on this already um i do uh would like the department to respond to all the letters that have come in and, um, and I think you have three members of the council here, four members of the council here that, um, you know, as I mentioned, we're very engaged in, in this just because it does affect uh, uh, a lot of the development happening. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm fine with, uh, with that. Uh, and I concur with the concerns that were, uh, were brought up by my, uh, my colleague in the first district. So. So if we can address those before they come to council, I'm, I'm good with moving forward, but we do need to have a grandfathering provision. I do support SB 330 uh, vesting, as long as it's not a vesting that is 10 years. I don't know what that balance is, but a vesting where projects uh, show to fruition, just because of the time and the amount of money that it takes and pro formas that need to be put into place, um, the market is is very volatile, and I know developers and builders now are ordering for nine months from now to make sure that they have supplies and materials. So um, I know there's a balance that I trust, uh, you know, city staff and our consultants to work with the developers before it comes back. But uh, with the friendly amendment accepted by the vice mayor, I'll second it. Okay, so the motion is to move it to council with the additional direction of the SB 330 amendment. And if I could make a friendly amendment to the friendly amendment, not to use the phrase grandfathering, um, but to instead talk about where in the project we could phase in for different phases, just because that comes with a lot of historical bad baggage. Um, thank you. Um, Vice Chair. Thank you. Um, my colleagues have gotten to where I want to be, and so I, I totally support um, the motion that was on the floor and the amendment that was made so we can move at a faster time frame. And I would hope that we have some kind of a timeline with the specific actions that have to happen that we can see and know that it's going to happen within the time before it comes to the council so that we don't put these product projects in jeopardy of not happening. So the investments that have been made, um, these fees are affecting them and we don't want that to happen. We wanna make sure we invest in our infrastructure we know that, but we also don't want to have potential litigation that delays and moves everything backwards. So um, the timeline is something I think is very important to understand how quickly we can move forward uh, for everybody's purposes. 
Thank you, um, Vice Chair. I see the Vice yeah. Mayor and Councilmember Punch up when you hear the again. It so just, ahead, yeah, please. thank you, Madam Chair. First, I, I, you know, it popped into my head. I want to thank the staff for their ingenuity and in, in, in difficult areas to build. 65th and Folsom is a good example, the 65th Transit Village Corridor. We wow. used the gradient fee process there because it was hard to incentivize people to come in there. And, um, and it was going to be a big hit. And so the, the, the fee increased. It was lower for those early adopters willing to risk and those higher for those that are finally came in uh, on the back end. And, and it met our, to meet our, our uh, requirement for the infrastructure. So I, I'd like to just at least throw this on, because uh, throw this in the conversation, because what, what, uh, what I see in this fee is that it's not, I mean, we're moving the decimal point. You know, it's not, it's not like we're making a slight adjustment. We're actually making a significant one. Now, that fee may be within market, and I, and I, believe, I appreciate the staff's rec recognition on that. Uh, but even though it's within market, it's all about where, you know, how people have planned for that. So I, I'd like to also uh, look at, at the, uh, whether a gradient fee process would work. Uh, but uh, uh, in comparison with that, I'd also like to look at, well, what, what, what does that deficit mean? Because if, if we can't build or the, the, the needed public infrastructure, um, then, then that's a challenge. Because at the end of the day, we have to build public infrastructure, but also not make it a deterrent to build more housing units in Sacramento. So the gradient process, I'd like to, uh, if you guys could look at that before we come back to council. So. Okay, and Councilmember Kaplan. Thank you, Chair. Just one final thing to look at, because um, I know it said, you know, implementation January 1st, 2024. Um, you know, while it's not the same, I do believe in a certain level of consistency. So the conversation, I'd hope, you know, as it comes to council, maybe it's uh, implemented 90 days after council adoption. So instead of a hard day, that gives a little bit more certainty. Um, that kind of puts the onus on us. The faster we reach agreement, it can come into implement, but let's give a, at least a 90-day uh, heads up because that's normal in the development community with school districts. If okay, no, that's helpful, thank you. Um, thank you, Pravani, and I also wanna thank your staff for um, taking the time to give me a tour of some of the infrastructure, including the McKinley Vault. Yes, I did go into the vault, everybody, and I gotta tell you, that was pretty crazy. Um, and to imagine standing in that, like just multiple, multiple foot vault size space and imagining that, full of water as it was in January and what that would have meant for our streets to have that water not be caught in a vault and to instead have been flowing through, you know, East Sacramento, Central City, all over the place is kind of mind boggling. It's hard to imagine what that would have looked like. And so definitely appreciate the need to be conscientious about how we invest in this infrastructure because we don't want that to end up in people's homes um, and, and, you know, in our parks and all over the place where we don't, where it would really interfere with day-to-day -day life. I also want to thank your department's work I know, and our um, government affairs director, Consuelo's work on advocacy around the Green Means Go program, which is those infrastructure dollars, because I want to echo what's said in public comment with a slight twist, which is that it's not either or. You know, I think that I appreciate how you're saying this isn't instead of looking for more public money to invest, this isn't instead of looking for other grants or bonds. It's really meant to fill in the gap, as the vice mayor um, said, so that we're making sure we're being responsible and really measuring the impact these projects have on our system. So. 
I um, really want to thank you all for the hard work on this. I know it's been a long process to date, so thank the entire team um, for all you've done, and I um, look forward to hearing this at Council as soon as you're ready to come to us. So um, with that, we have a motion and a second on the table. All in favor, please say aye. Aye. Any opposed or abstentions? Motion passes unanimously. Thank you, Department of Utility staff. All right, now on to the item that I think everybody else in the room is here for. Um, item number six, uh, <laughs> discussion of social consumption at special events and on-site consumption lounges. Um, as our staff comes up, if we could please get a little bit of quiet in the room. I know everybody's excited to finally have your item here and folks exiting the room. If we could please keep it down. Would love to get you all out of here before 5 p.m. Um, so <laughs> just want to start off by thanking Davina and the team for the work you've done on this. Um, the research, traveling to other cities, talking to other cities who manage these programs, really looking at the depth and breadth of research. And so just want to frame the conversation in terms of our goal today is to really give staff input on what we'd like to come back to this committee. So this is not a final decision on an ordinance. We're not deciding any today we're giving them direction so they have a feel for where we are as a committee and what might be palatable to go to council but I will say it's been a long year of you doing this research <laughs> and so really looking forward to your presentation today and also just want to flag um, since Davina and I've been talking about this offline um, many council members including those not on this committee have asked for more information on public health um, and so that is something that Davina and I are talking about and I want to appreciate um, Jim Keddie's suggestion of talking to the state office of cannabis management to potentially come in and present the leading research and trends that they're seeing so that that could also help inform a final decision on this ordinance, but also many other ordinances that we're considering around land use and taxation as well. So I um, just want to frame that in terms of context so people know where we're at in this process and pass it over to Davina for a very thorough presentation that I'm looking forward to hearing the committee's thoughts on. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Davina Smith, and I'm the program manager for the Office of Cannabis Management. Um, and very happy to be in front of you today. Um, so the, the overarching reason of why we're here today is looking at where can people legally consume cannabis. This is a similar situation to right after Prop 215 passed where people could suddenly possess cannabis legally, but there was no supply chain in place. How could you get cannabis legally? And so we're at that same kind of flexion point um, in our cannabis history in California. Where can you consume cannabis legally? So as most people know, you know, you can't consume in cars, in parks, in most businesses, on many sidewalks, within 100 feet of any other person, within 100 feet of a place open to the public. If you rent, you probably can't smoke anything in your home, and you can't smoke any place where tobacco is prohibited. You also can't smoke at special events in Sacramento. So it really becomes a question of what are we doing to allow people to have a place where they can legally smoke cannabis. And can I caveat, because I think this might come up in public comment, there have been instances at a recent very public event where cannabis was offered to participants um, for free. It was a sample lounge. That is not allowed. Um, just to make super clear, there are follow-up steps happening here. So folks are calling and saying, I saw this at, you know, I won't name the event, but I saw this at this event and this isn't okay. That's currently already not allowed anywhere and just want to make sure that's super, super clear. Like it's illegal, like there is follow-up enforcement actions happening. Yes, thank you. That's correct. Thank you for that. So we think it's important to kind of define what this is, right? What is social consumption? I think it may be a new term for some people. It's an umbrella term that really describes two different activities um, where you're smoking or ingesting cannabis in a designated cannabis consumption area in either a licensed event 
or at a consumption space operated by a licensed cannabis retailer. So as I said earlier, the goal of this project is to really say, is there a way that we can have this permitted legally in our city? The goal of this hearing, what staff is hoping to come away from at the end of this time, is to get direction on whether to regulate social consumption in a way that allows for specified activities or specifically prohibits them. So we're looking for that direction. So it has been a very long road, as the chair noted. Um, back in December of 2021, after many individual meetings and conversations with stakeholders, we did have a dedicated stakeholder meeting. Those were two-hour meetings with a, a lot of questions, and we do uh, Q&As at the end of those. Um, feedback was that people wanted to have this social consumption space in the city of Sacramento. So moving forward, you know that was something that EPS looked at in their studies. We had those um, hearings here in this chamber with the Law and Legislation Committee. Um, council also considered those recommendations and chose not to take actions on it at that time. Uh, we were directed to come back, and we came back in August of 2022 to have an on-site consumption workshop, uh, we, again, with Law and Legislation Committee. And at that time, we brought in regulators from uh, four different jurisdictions that were regulating cannabis consumption lounges and some events. Um, so they could kind of discuss what they had experienced, um, what they saw, good and bad. We also, in April of this year, we hosted a series of community engagement meetings and met with the PBIDs. Uh, we followed up with online surveys. We got over 400 responses to those surveys. And between October of 22 and July of 2023, uh, we visited eight different consumption lounges and one um, cannabis-friendly hotel, spoke with the regulators in those districts um, and the operators as well. So definitely appreciate everybody's time and attention to this issue. It has been a long time coming. So as far as... Davina, that the council actually voted majority to, to explore this item as well. Do you remember what day that was? So I think, I think they voted to take no action, and I think you requested that it be considered and brought back with more information to the Law and Legislation Committee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bless you. <laughs> so currently, cannabis consumption events are only allowed at Cal Expo in Sacramento. The council does have the ability to designate additional places for that activity to occur. That is not currently happening. So right now, we have had a total of three different cannabis events at Cal Expo, the Tree Harvest Festival and two High Times festivals. Those all occurred before 2019. There was another one that was scheduled to happen in 2020, but that got shelved because of the COVID emergency. So as far as regulations around social consumption events, um, you require, you're required to have a state event organizer license, a state temporary event license for the location, and then local approval for that location. The permit can't be any more than one to four days in length, four days maximum, one day minimum. There can only be 21 and over in attendance, no consumption within the public view, no alcohol or tobacco sales or consumption allowed in the, in the cannabis consumption area, can't smoke cannabis where cannabis, uh, where tobacco smoking is prohibited, no free samples or testers, um, and again, it can only happen at fairgrounds or district ag associations unless another location is approved by the local jurisdiction. So some examples of, again, large-scale events that um, local jurisdictions have approved outside of those fairgrounds. Uh, Oakland had their Market Days event. That was in a, one of their public parks. 
Uh, Humboldt County has approved a cannabis consumption area of the Northern Lights Festival. And then San Francisco County and city, of course, uh, approved grasslands at the Outside Lands Festival, which again was in Parkland. So, you know, I think one of the things that comes up is what, why do we, why is this an issue? Why do we, we have a place where we can have these cannabis consumption events, but so, so what's the problem? Why do we need more places? And I think the, the, the answer to that really is that Cal Expo is a very large event space. It is great for some things. I love going to the fair there, <laughs> but it is not perfect for the needs of a cannabis consumption event. Um, it's very expensive and therefore financially risky for anybody to put on an event there. It's also not ideally suited for an outdoor cannabis smoking event. There are only certain designated areas outside that cannabis can be smoked, and as anyone who went to the state fair this year knows, it's really hot there outside. There's not a lot of shade, not a lot of grass, there's a lot of out, uh, asphalt. It's also not directly served by public transit. So when we think about, you know, do we really want 10,000 people to attend an event, perhaps consume cannabis, all get in their cars and go? Um, the answer is probably we've got something we're not interested in seeing. It's a very car-centric venue. So we think that if the council's interested in allowing other locations for cannabis consumption events to occur, it will open up the opportunities for more diverse groups, more diverse activities, smaller groups, several hundred people, as opposed to multiple thousands. There's also the possibility for this because of the somewhat limited time frame of these activities and events to have a pilot program. Um, I know Humboldt County, for example, with their Reggae on the River Festival with Northern Lights, they do request a, a report back where all the agencies that were involved, the um, event organizer, all compile a report, present it, and at that point, the local jurisdiction decides whether they're going to allow it for the next year. So that's certainly something that we can look at. So when we look at consumption lounges, um, there are state regulations around that as well. They view it as an add-on operation to a state-licensed cannabis retail business. Again, it has to be 21 and over and outside of public view for the actual consumption of cannabis. No alcohol or tobacco sales or consumption in the cannabis consumption area. Again, no free cannabis. You have to have local authorization to have a cannabis lounge. And of course, there's a labor peace agreement requirement for all cannabis businesses, which includes cannabis consumption lounges. In Sacramento, we don't have any authorization for local uh, cannabis lounges to happen. Uh, if they were to occur, so if we were to um, permit them, they would have to be subject to all laws, including our zoning restrictions, um, and they would have to be operated by a storefront retailer on the same premises. So we've been to a number of jurisdictions, um, and I think it's good to kind of see what other people are doing. We all know what an, a large event looks like. We've all been to big festivals, but I think cannabis consumption lounges are a bit unique. So we did take some pictures and try to make a sort of a, a short photo array here. This was one place in San Francisco. Um, they did rent um, like dab rigs and other things that you could um, use to consume your cannabis there. They did have a time limit of 30 minutes to stay in the cannabis lounge. This is another location. Uh, interesting, again, they had warning signs on each table to basically kind of help inform the consumer that um, these are things to watch out for. It's normal. If you start feeling this way, stop consuming. Stay calm. 
in Oakland. Uh, this was an interesting one for us because, um, unfortunately, we weren't able to get a photo of it because it was a bad weather day, but um, to the right of the right-hand photo, uh, there's actually a garage door at this facility you can open up, and it leads to an outdoor consumption area where you could sit in the shade and, and consume cannabis. The bar that was in there was primarily for um, drinks, so you could order either sealed cannabis drinks or have infused cocktails, mocktails, um, where you would be given a little, a little uh, vial of um, THC, you know, your infused cannabis, and you would infuse your own drink. So in Palm Springs, this was one of the facilities we went to. This was probably the most um, kind of just basic. Um, there weren't a lot of flourishes here. Um, you can see on the far right side, there's um, these sort of um, glass doors that opened in. When we walked into the retail per side, um, these doors were open, and so the, the smell of burnt cannabis was throughout the facility, as you would imagine. Um, there was no way to view the area that you can see on the left from outside because the glass was all frosted. This was a facility in Palm Springs that um, the only one we saw that was um, the consumption lounge and the, the retail area was all integrated as one, so there was no sort of sectioned off consumption area. They had a lot of things for people to do while there. As you can see, they had an entire room with video games and air hockey. They had sort of life-size chess pieces, pool tables. They had a music stage in the back, uh, as well as just couches and places to hang out. Uh, this facility was upstairs of their retail location, so they would actually, if you wanted to consume there, they would guide you out, take you up on an elevator, um, and sort of introduce you to their concierge slash bud tender who was stationed up there. Um, and you could just sit down, relax. There were have, they had two, I, I believe, two um, smaller rooms that you could book to have sort of private meetings or private get-togethers. And this one was in Coachella. This is a place, it was interesting, we, we actually wanted to provide the the photo on the bottom right, just to give you some context of this place was out in the middle of nowhere. Um, the facility is, if you look, it's just to the left of the palm tree on the left. So it's really across the street from a truck stop um, off the highway. Um, it did have a very internal um, setup that was interesting to us, though, because as you can see, the consumption area was completely glassed off. Um, in the top left photo, you can see, looking through the consumption area, sort of white rectangles. That was actually the sales counter. So that allowed the um, sales personnel to be able to look into the, the consumption lounge without entering, sort of see who was there, who had left, if they needed to go in and sort of you know, wipe down the tables, if there was anything you know, happening that might get out of hand. So that was very interesting to us. Um, they also had a really good HVAC system, so it, you couldn't, you know, as you're walking outside that glassed-in area, we didn't scent any burning cannabis, even though there was somebody in there smoking when we walked in. So we also went to a couple places in West Hollywood. Um, this facility had indoor and outdoor seating. Um, on the right-hand side, you can see three photos of the indoor seating. The two top-left photos shows their outdoor seating. Uh, it's on a second-floor balcony overlooking um, a pretty busy street. Uh, you can see the vegetation there is designed to rise up and hide the consumption of cannabis from any passerbys or the building across the way. Um, they also have, as you can see in that, um, in the top left photo, to the right a little bit, um, there's uh, um, sort of ducting and vents, right, so that that was designed to suck in the cannabis smoke out there. So we arrived there on Friday evening, and it was, it was hopping. Uh, I would say virtually all those tables um, outside were, were taken up. 
Um, the inside area were, um, were pretty, I would say about halfway filled. Um, there were groups of people playing Jenga. There were groups of people just kind of talking. Um, this place also offered food, so you could um, order on a QR code from a restaurant next door that would come out and bring it over to you, so you could sit there and eat um, and enjoy your cannabis. This place also had a, an art gallery downstairs along with their retail stage that um, featured local artists, which they were um, very proud of. And then this was the last place we went to in West Hollywood. They also had indoor and outdoor consumption. They're also the only place that we saw that had lockers. So those lockers on the bottom right um, could be rented for people who didn't have, um, who weren't interested in consuming all of the cannabis they had purchased there. They could rent a locker, keep it there, and come back the next day or later that day. Um, it had also had a bar, as you can see on the lower left, just like the other place we went to in West Hollywood. They had the possibility for infused mocktails. Um, it seemed to be pretty popular. Their outdoor areas, you can see on the two top right photos, little seating areas where people could sit out there and consume cannabis. They also had um, little glassed-in houses, pagodas, I don't know what you would call them, um, that you could rent. And this was the only place we saw that charged money to, um, to get into the consumption area. And their um, little consumption rooms went for $100 an hour and uh, had television, HVAC system in there, had um, everything you needed to consume cannabis um, in a private environment. Um, so they were very, um, yeah, they were definitely a, very beautiful. They had a koi pond, they had a waterfall. It was, it was quite something. Uh, Desert Hot Springs, this is a hotel that has um, really kind of gained national fame for being a, a cannabis consumption hotel. Um, the two top photos show the areas that where cannabis can be consumed. Their pool, it's a mineral pool, so people like to come and soak there. You, you can't smoke around the pool, but you just go through sort of the, the doors and there you get to this outside area uh, where people congregate under the shade, they consume cannabis, relax. There's no near neighbors, um, but the owner said that they, they have good relationships with everyone sort of in their, their area and don't seem to have any problems. So, you know, I will say we, we didn't get any, we figured at least someone would tell us, this is a boondoggle, we paid too much money, we're not interested in this, or it was a mistake to permit it because we're having these problems. We didn't get that feedback. Um, we got, you know, I think regulators were happy that uh, the number of complaints about consumption on the street was reduced. Um, the operators felt that they are really contributing to their community by providing a place for renters, a lot of medical patients to come in and consume. Um, and that they were providing a gathering space for people to sort of um, do activities around cannabis. Um, I know the places in San Francisco really talked a lot about uh, being proud of the fact that they were able to provide a safe space for newcomers to cannabis to consume. They talked about people showing up at their facilities straight from the airport with, with luggage, right, and excited to try cannabis. Um, and so they were very conscious of the fact that they needed to be very interactive with their customers and really kind of see what their level of use history is, you know, to it, not only to advise to them how much they should purchase, but really kind of keep an eye on them as they were consuming. The regulators reported that overconsumption and violent behavior hadn't been an issue. The operators themselves reported that they had, that the, the biggest issues they had were people who had been out drinking and then wanted to come in to the cannabis facility. And so their staff would tend to stop them 
and not let them in and serve them, and that's when things would get rowdy, right? And, and they would want to come in and, you know, how dare you deny me service? Um, so they seem to seem feel that the alcohol side was the, the problem, not the cannabis side. Um, we did specifically ask all the regulars we spoke to if they were aware of any spikes in impaired driving due to the opening of the, the cannabis facilities. They weren't familiar with any of those happening. Um, I know Palm Springs was very excited about being, you know, the, the idea of, especially in a post-COVID environment, marketing on-site consumption as part of a vacation experience. You come here to relax, you get a massage, maybe it's a CBD massage, you go, you can consume cannabis, get an Uber back to your hotel. Um, and they were very excited about that uh, possibility for economic development. We did find, which was surprising to us, that none of the operators reported that the consumption lounges were um, really providing much of a financial boon, and they didn't feel like people were, were coming for the most part, and especially in Southern California, they didn't feel that people were coming to them just because they had the lounge. But they also believed pretty strongly that they were preparing for the future and that they felt that the time had not, like we're, we're moving up to the time where people will get together and congregate over cannabis, right, and do activities, and that cannabis lounges will be like the brewery, right, where you come in, you chit chat with your friends, um, and I think a lot of them felt very much, those who had been operating pre-COVID, that that's where they had been going. Like people would come in, group, group works, you know, people from work would come in for happy hour after work, right, and consume some cannabis and then go home. So they felt like this was kind of, they were starting to come back, but they weren't there yet. So they were really looking for the future. So as you saw, some of, these, some of the businesses had invested significant funds, I mean, millions of dollars into their facilities, and none of them felt like it was a boondoggle, none of them felt that they weren't gonna get their investment back eventually. And the other thing that was interesting was regulators talked about um, their desire to have cannabis treated like any other sort of adult-oriented product or service. Um, and they felt that that normalization of cannabis was a good thing. Um, and so they, they felt very positive about that. So after all those conversations we had with stakeholders like those in the room, with community members, with regulators, with operators, um, you know, we identified some of the, the issues, and, and with council members too, we identified some issues that kind of kept coming up and, and really kind of talked and thought about, you know, what are some maybe best practices we can go to around this. Youth use and youth access, of course, are, are, are very important subjects. It's not appropriate for youth to utilize cannabis. We all know that it's not good for the developing adolescent brain. Um, one positive note we found in, in the CDPH studies is that uh, California youth do report lower cannabis use in the national averages, which I was personally surprised at. Um, it's still not a good, but it's statistic, but it looks to be around, you know, between 10 and 13 percent of cannabis high school, of high school students are using cannabis. As far as access is concerned, you know, that's a tough one. It doesn't appear that youth are accessing cannabis from, you know, they're not going into the dispensary, right, the regulated dispensary and buying cannabis there. They're either getting it through the underground market or they're getting cannabis from friends, relatives who purchase it, either legally or illegally, and either give it to them or they take it from them, right? Um, so, you know, when we think about what can we do for this, um, you know, we think it's important to continue on with the youth and parent education that we're doing, both with the Sacramento County um, School District and our other partnerships with public health. We also think that, um, you know, we currently work, we currently do 
um, these sell smart um, trainings to basically teach uh, retail employees how to identify underage purchasers and how not to sell to them. So we think that's important to continue. Smoke is another issue, I think, where there's been a lot of conversation around. Um, clearly, California has worked very hard to uh, diminish the number of smokers of tobacco in our state. Um, we're doing a great job, right? We're down to 11% of adults that use any kind of tobacco product, whether that's vaping, dip, cigarettes, cigars, hookahs. Um, we do think that designating places where people can smoke cannabis away from sensitive receptors, and that can be people who are allergic, people who have lung disease, people who are asthmatic, young people, um, and regulating those places to make it as safe as possible for those smokers is important. So that would include air filtration requirements, air exchanges to the exterior of the facility, negative pressure smoking room. Um, these are not cheap things. We completely acknowledge that. But we think that if we're really trying to balance sort of the need of a place for people to legally consume cannabis along with sort of a public health safety thing for folks, that that might be somewhere the council wants to go. We also think that limits on the amount of time spent in the consumption area may be useful. Um, we saw most of the facilities we looked at did not limit time. Um, the most um, short time limit we saw was San Francisco facilities at 30 minutes. One of the West Hollywood facilities limited theirs to 90 minutes. The others seemed to say there was no time limit. Uh, people kind of came, you know, used their product, hung out for a little bit, watched some TV, talked to their friends, and then left, and it wasn't a problem. And they said if they did notice that there was people, you know, someone staying there for four hours or five hours, they would probably kick them out at that point. So employee safety is another issue um, that I think needs to be considered. Um, for employees, you know, there are still, um, you know, the, the ability to have a labor peace union agreement, um, the requirement of 20 or more employees is actually going down to 10. So those protections that the union can fight for on behalf of their employees is still going to be there for every facility that has more than 10 employees after July 1st of 2024. Currently it's 20 employees. We also found in talking with the operators um, that they did certain things to try to minimize their employees' exposure to smoke. Um, as you saw in some of the photos, consumption areas were frequently closed off. Um, having that closed off area be clear glass so that staff can monitor what is going on in there without actually having to go in seemed like a good idea to us. Um, in San Francisco, they had um, quite a few cameras in their consumption room. So again, staff could be outside and just sort of monitor the consumption that was going on inside without having to enter the room. Um, one of the operators we talked to uh, discussed having um, a time limit on the, the amount of time that their employees could stay into, inside the consumption room. And so they would have people sort of trade off, like, okay, I went last hour, you go this hour, to wipe down tables, interact with customers, kind of check in with people. And then again, as we said earlier, a lounge equipped with those you know, expensive but um, you know, good features to eliminate that smell and that, um, that air quality um, we think is probably important, right? So a high air filtration rate, ventilation rate, the air not recirculated within the facility, and the room depressurized relative to the non-smoking areas we think would be important. Impaired driving, huge issue. It comes up, I think, every time we talk about on-site consumption. Um, unfortunately, there is no breathalyzer equivalent for cannabis. 
Um, there are companies that are making what they say, it will, will tell you that, but nothing has been certainly accepted by our um, state courts um, that can actually say, like someone, <laughs> you, you consumed cannabis within the last X period of time and you are impaired and unable to drive. Um, in the studies we've looked at, it looks like there's still maybe quite a bit of time before we can get anything like that. And part of that has to do with just the way that THC is metabolized in your bloodstream and your body versus the way alcohol is. But we do think that the alcohol industry can give us some good clues on maybe how to mitigate some of the risks with impaired driving. So one is just thinking about um, where do we locate a, a business that has on-site consumption. Um, we don't want it in a car-centric area. We probably want it in a place that has good public transit, good walkability, right, so that people don't have to rely on cars to get their income away. Um, there are states that offer, that make their, their storefront um, consumption lounges offer discounts or coupons for taxi rides or ride sharing or public transit. So that's certainly something we could discuss. We think allowing purchasers to take unconsumed product home um, takes away that pressure to consume everything on site. Um, allowing purchasers to have a locker. So again, they don't feel like they need to overconsume in one sitting. They can sort of have a little bit, put it away, come back later in the day, come back the next day. Um, just similar to how you know, some high-end bars will have special whiskey decanters that their patrons purchase and keep there and they come in and have a glass of it. We think that training staff on signs of overconsumption, um, having them check in with consumers, and then kind of treating, training them on what to do if there is someone who's overconsumed and worried about it. Um, we see this all the time at volunteers for festivals. They will have um, training on interventions, right? Getting someone to sit down, have a snack, drink some water, telling them it's gonna be okay. Because a lot of times just calming someone down is a lot of it. And so having people trained on staff that can do that is important. And then of course, in our conversations with CHP, um, they, they, um, they do offer grants, and they're actually pushing grants to try to get more um, local police officers, um, drug recognition experts certified. And these are the folks who um, are able to determine if someone has, you know, has, has taken a substance and their driving is impaired. So we think that's certainly an option that can be used by the city in order to mitigate issues around impaired driving. So we have sort of three main decision points. Um, the first one is around events. So do we want to continue to limit events to Cal Expo only? Or do we want to allow events at other locations in the city? And then, of course, there's the opportunity, if we do want to go that way, to have a pilot program. If people want to try this out, if the council is concerned about how this is going to go, we can do a pilot program with a certain number of events or a certain time frame, and then have a report back to see how it goes and if the program should be continued. Otherwise, there's the option for a permanent program and we can create regulations around that. The second decision point comes around consumption lounges. Do we want to affirmatively prohibit all consumption lounges or do we want to create a regulatory program for consumption lounges? And then of course third is opportunities for our core program participants. So there are several ways to go here. Um, we put this forward specifically to consumption lounges because there is such a large investment in a brick and mortar facility. Um, we could have it open to all core storefront retailers, now or future. We could have it open only to core storefront retailers for a certain period of time. 
or we could have it to open to all storefront retailers with a priority given to core storefront retailers. And finally, you know, everyone wants to know what, what will happen next. Well, um, depending on where you recommend, we'll come back with that, rather, whether it's the prohibition or an allowance. We'll create a regulatory program if that is what is um, requested that we do. Um, we'll come back to this committee unless you all want us to go straight to council. Um, if there are any zoning changes, because based upon that walkability is an issue, of course. Uh, most of our storefront dispensaries are not in um, very walkable areas, and so that's something to consider. But zoning code changes will need to be brought forward by the planning staff to the Planning and Design Commission. And then um, just to, as an FYI for everybody, when the 10 storefront uh, dispensary opportunities were made available, council at that time requested um, OCM to come back report on how they had been doing um, and make and, and basically ask at that time if we should be opening up additional opportunities to core members. Uh, we plan to bring that to um, the council in December, January, depending upon meeting availability um, and have that discussion then. Um, so that's our presentation and I'm, we'll give it over to the committee at this point. Thank you, and I especially appreciate the summary of um, what's already happening in terms of report back on core and zoning changes actually that are already pending at Planning and Design Commission. So let's um, move now to members of the public. Madam Clerk, do we have people sign up for public comment? Thank you, Chair. I have 37 speakers. As your name is called, please form a line behind the podium. I just I want to reemphasize what Katie just said. Um, please form a line when your name is called. We don't want to have to spend 30 seconds to a minute just in between speakers. So thank you and so much. Chair, we have an addition. We have 39. 39. All right. Let's go. Yes, and if someone already said what you're going to say, you can also be like what they said, and we would greatly appreciate that too. <laughs> our first our first speaker is Matthew St. Germain, followed by Ryan Donnelly. Then Isaac Altamarino. Okay, well, I'm first, boy. Uh, Matthew St. Germain, I work for Green Brothers Farm. We're a cultivator and processor out of uh, Lockford, which is near Lodi. I was born in Sacramento, grew up in Fair Oaks. I live in Santa Rosa now. I came in support of the Sacramento cannabis community, and I just wanted to add a little bit of science. I, I read a lot of studies. I'm on a program called the Hyatt Nine News where I do a lot of news articles and aggregation of science. So first off, uh, in, the, in the shadow of legalized cannabis availability, we find a fall off of opioid usage, of DUI, of domestic abuse, of violent crime, and basically we find a lessening of antisocial behavior. Cannabis itself, now this is, we're going way out of science, back to you know woo-woo land, but uh, cannabis itself is a living plant whose use actually encourages pro-social behavior. There is a message in the use of the cannabis plant, and that is family and community and respect for nature. Uh, moving on to the last thing I'm gonna, uh, I, I'd like to uh, point out is that if you were to limit consumption for events to Cal Expo, I'm sure you've all been there to the state fair or other events, what you're gonna find is all of a sudden, you have to have an event that has 100,000 attendees in order to even break even, right? In allowing consumption at, at events and these, these off-site places, you can allow for events that are much smaller that can actually bring grassroots members of the community together to network. And I think, again, you'll find a lot of pro-social behavior, the absence of littering, the absence of violence, the absence of over-intoxication. That's, that's it for me. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is Ryan Donnelly. Ryan Donnelly. How's it going today? My name is Ryan Donnelly. Um, I would like to just ask 
if we could not only allow consumption at places like Cal Expo, obviously this is not your typical venue uh, for you know event spaces for like local communities. Um, I also believe it makes sense to uh, allow pilot programs for people who are already in this space uh, to be allowed to continue forward. Um, in section B, one and two, I disagree with both of these. Consumption should not only be allowed at a dispensary, uh, but open to all. To me, only allowing a dispensary to uh, have consumption on site is is like only being able to drink at a liquor store in which you bought your alcohol. Offsite consumption needs to be allowed and available. This will allow the cannabis community to come together uh, with cannabis. The community aspect of cannabis is very important and a huge part of cannabis in itself. To me, cannabis uh, isn't legalized if social consumption isn't, and it's uh, desperately needed right now. Cannabis users want to be able to gather and enjoy cannabis to get, uh, together, similar to bars uh, for alcohol. Um, I also believe it's very important for this opportunity to be allowed for everyone, um, not just core members. Uh, I appreciate your time today and for hearing us. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is Isaac, followed by Myra Altamarino, then Ben Johnson, and Marcos Cerita. Thanks, everybody. Nice to meet you all. My name is Isaac Altamirano. My wife, Myra, and I own 1111 Delivery, and we also have a cannabis uh, license for events, an event organizer license. Um, our delivery service would like to be a have a, the option for a private consumption lounge. Um, the report, while progressive and good for the city, only gives storefronts the ability to have on-site consumption lounges. I'm not asking for a dispensary storefront. Um, the delivery works well um, as a standalone. All we're asking is for the opportunity to have a private space to consume like a storefront would, um, as highlighted in this report. Uh, here's the problem, problem in our suggestion. On, uh, as mentioned by Ryan on Section B, this is only for storefronts, and this leaves us out uh, and completely excludes us because uh, we do not have a storefront. We only have a delivery dispensary. There's a cap on how many storefronts are. There's no cap on how many deliveries there could be. Storefronts could add a delivery option without any additional licensing. We don't have an option to add storefront without any additional licensing. Right now, we have a private space, and we have done over 180 consumption events under the private realm. Um, OCM, Davina is knocking on our doors because uh, they want to make sure that we are within city code and ordinances and keeping the, the rules. Uh, but we can help you figure this out. We actually know what we're doing. We, this is our lives, and we would like to be involved in this and help the city so we can uh, have a better part in this program for off-site consumption in a pilot program um, for delivery retailers, not just storefronts. Um, we have processes in place we would like to share with you all. If you ask, we would love to answer questions. We have done quite a lot of things that have never had any type of negative impact with the community. Uh, and. Last thing, um, we are currently being threatened to have our permits, which are livelihoods, to be taken away because of this private consumption events or perhaps not renewed or revoked. Uh, it's our plea and our, our prayer for, in front of you guys. Thank you for that your we comment. Can your time is complete. Redirect OCM. Thank you for your time. Uh, our next so speaker is Maya. We don't Maya. get threatened to remove our permits. Your time is Thank complete. You Thank you for your, your comment. Time. Maya?
thank you for the opportunity to be here. My name is Myra Altamirano, and I know that running the city is very hard, and we want to make it a little bit easier for this proposal to go a little bit smoother. The opportunity for everyone to have an off-site consumption. We want to become one of your pilot's programs in order for this to move forward in a safe for everyone to have the opportunity to consume and do their network. Um, also, this uh, program for lounges, we need everyone to be part of it, not just CORE. CORE will um, dis different, disfranchise us as one of the stakeholders that we are here in, in the city. Please give us the opportunity to make this a little bit easier for everyone to be part of it. Thank you for your time. Our next speaker is Marco Cerita, followed by Matt, then Marcus Cameron. <clears throat> ben Johnson, uh, I apologize. Hello. Uh, I'm a local from Sacramento, you know, and uh, I kind of agree with what they're saying definitely. You know, I feel like we shouldn't be able to uh, just limit it to, uh, you know, dispensaries because at, at that you're kind of limiting areas where people are able to uh, gather as a a community as a culture, you know, uh, that it is already. Um, we, we do look for a, uh, you know, a pilot program for standalone off-site consumption lounges, you know, because at the end of the day, we're, uh, not everybody uh, are able to spend, uh, like, you know, the big dollars that uh, they're asking for at certain dispensaries, you know, with uh, those lounges. You know, and not everybody has access to be even going that far. So when you have local offsite uh, lounges, I feel like it's a little more accessible for the community and uh, the you know disabled, you know the people, the vets, you know certain individuals like that. You know, I feel like it just gives people a safe haven. Uh, yeah, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Marcos. Ben Johnson? Ben Johnson. So it's Marcos. Hello, Council. Thanks for your time. My name is Ben. I am a partner with 1111 Delivery. In the last paragraph of page two, at the beginning of page three, the report highlights the community needs not just on-site consumption, but we also need to need delivery with standalone off-site consumption. While the law and ledge work on this proposal for Council, Please direct OCM to create a partnership with those of us who are already piloting private consumption instead of threatening us with taking away our livelihoods. Yes, we have been threatened to have our permits taken away, thus our sources of income and livelihood. If you refer to Section 3 on the report, it states on the bullet point B that cannabis consumption lounges are just for retail storefronts. Off-site consumption with delivery standalone is what we propose. We will provide equity and non-store equity for the non-storefront retailers. As it is, store, it, the storefronts are allowed to do deliveries, but deliveries are not allowed to have a storefront. We would like to be able to have this made possible for us, for the playing field to be leveled. All these changes and options should be made available to all of us. Not only the core program, however, I do believe the core program should have priority processing. Legalization is not legalization without consumption. Thank you for your time.
speaker is Matt. Sorry about that. Hi, my name is Matthew Pasquale. I'm with a delivery called Alpaca Club here in Sacramento. Um, I'd like to make two most two asks and two proposals. One, that the city opens up the locations where, where cannabis event organizer license can do public events, especially Discovery Park, Crest Theater, and other locations. Because right now, like big companies come in like Weed Maps, they just buy out. I don't know aftershock. And they just run events. They don't care about what you guys say. They just sell drugs there, and you guys can't stop them. They do it every year. And, like, it, you guys are just not paying attention. And it's crazy. Please allow, that for, please allow cannabis and organized licenses to have multiple spots where we can apply here in Sacramento. The second is create a pilot program for, retail, for non-storefront retailers to have off-site consumption lounges. This is necessary. Many stores do not have the space. There's one store out of all of them have the space for a consumption lounge. All of them are going to have to open a second premise anyways. Allow stores and non-storefronts that will be able to do that and make that possible for the 40 licenses that you have as non-storefronts to interact with consumption. Do not make consumption illegal, because you are hurting us against the black market. All your choices are doing is making the black market win, and I don't understand. I don't understand why you support the black market more than you support tax-paying businesses. And you guys are doing that, and it's great. Thank you for your comment. Thank you for your comment. Our next, thank you. Our next speaker is Marcus. Um, <laughs> my name is uh, Marcus Cameron. Um, I have been working in the cannabis industry for about the last 10, 11 years. Um, I'm from Sacramento. I've got three generations here in Sacramento. Um, but my experience takes me out of SAC. Um, I've opened up a lot of operations in Washington, Hawaii, um, Oregon, and even here, in, in most recently in the Bay Area. I currently work with the equity operator right here in Sacramento, and I'm trying to bring all my experience back to Sacramento. Um, I'm going to be very clear. I don't want a dispensary license. I don't want a delivery license. I want to be able to support the current operators that are currently already operating by opening up a lounge to provide a safe space for our current consumers. Um, currently, the way the law is written, I really appreciate all the work Davina Smith did um, with her research. A lot of beautiful lounges outside of Sacramento, out really in the Bay Area. I don't understand why we can't do that here. Um, we are the capital of California. I would like for us to be the example. I feel that my experience and my current network of contacts, we can actually open up a beautiful location like that right here. Um, but I don't, I don't have a license. I can't do that the way it's currently written. Uh, I do believe that everyone should be able to open up a lounge who qualifies, um, meets the certain requirements to do so. Um, I do feel, though, that equity operators should have priority. I want to make that very clear as well, too. Um, but the way this is written, I'm out of the game. Um, I'm pretty much consulting um, those operators as I can, but I can't open anything myself, which takes me outside of Sacramento. Um, I can open up a lounge, but I want to do it here in the 916. Um, I can open up a lounge. I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to provide the experience and the tools that I've acquired and be able to provide it to my community here. Um, so please just take a look at that and get that in consideration. That's all I have to say today. Thank you for your time.
Next, we have Chris Chilton, followed by Diana Hunt, and then Chris Tao. Hello and thank you. Uh, my name is Chris Chilton. I work as a manager at a dispensary here in Sacramento, Sand Garden. Uh, currently, we're one of the busier dispensaries. We see over a thousand transactions per day. I can't imagine having to run that business and also have um, a group of people like smoking in the corner. Um, opening, this, <laughs> opening this up to allow anybody you know that wants to be in this market is is the best move for everybody in the community um, only making storefront responsible we can't modify our building so we have to either buy a new building or you guys have to change the the wording and how uh, dispensaries can change their building because right now no one can modify their building <sighs> sorry uh, so yeah I think opening this up having offsite for people that are not just re, uh, storefront retailers you know anybody that wants to get into this game like a bar you know the only people that uh, you can't only drink where at a brewery and that's kind of how this is is being set up is only breweries are going to be allowed to have it but there's bars on every corner you know where people can get together with friends they can consume um, so I think opening it up for everybody to have that opportunity and make it fair for everybody thank you thank you Diana. Hi, my name is Diana Huynh. I was born and raised here in this beautiful city of Sacramento. I'm not a business owner or a stakeholder. I'm just a regular consumer who is seeking for a designated safe space to socially consume my medical and recreational cannabis with my of age peers to stay educated and informed. We the people need a regulatory pilot program for consumption events apart from Cal Expo to break the entry barrier. We should not limit this program to just storefront retailers because expanding the range of business models to standalone off-site consumption lounges will help promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in the cannabis industry. It will also provide opportunities for entrepreneurs who may not have the resources to operate full-scale retail storefronts such as young aspiring entrepreneurs as myself. Doing so will foster social interactions and strengthen our sense of community where we can educate and promote responsible use in controlled and supervised environments, which will reduce the risk of misuse and overconsumption. This will re re result in reduced public consumption, which will increase public safety and reduce law enforcement burdens. To continue to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion, I believe this program should be open up to everyone with the priority of core members who are leading the way by example. Thank you for sharing your space. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker is Chris Tell, followed by Yesenia Marquez, then Ignacio. Hello. Thank you, Council, Davina, and staff. Uh, my name is Chris Tao. I'm from Humbleroo in the Pineapple Store. I'm a father of two, social equity member, cannabis license holder from the core program in Sacramento. I was raised in the neighborhoods of South Sacramento where many people rent their homes. These places do not allow the con consumption of cannabis and the good people are forced to turn to sidewalks, parks, and vehicles. This is the reality um, for most cannabis consumers. Having cannabis consumption only attached to storefront retailers or at Cal Expo is like only being able to drink at a local liquor store only being able to smoke cigarettes at your convenience stores, um, or it's like only being able to drink coffee at a coffee, inside the coffee shop. 
Allowing consumption off-site is the path to safe and accessible consumption. Please consider a standalone license type for cannabis consumption. By doing so, we'll normalize and further education about cannabis. Thank you. Hello, Law and Legislation Committee members. My name is Yesenia Marquez Villarreal. I'm a first-generation college graduate student. I'm a California licensed barber. I have previously worked in the cannabis retail industry as a bud tender, as well as a brand ambassador. I was the first to establish a cannabis education club at Cal California State University, Sacramento. Currently, I'm in my third week of my master's program at California State Sacramento, in which I intend to be the first graduate student to conduct my thesis on the endocannabinoid system in relation to exercise science as I pursue my degree in kinesiology with a concentration in exercise science. I'm here to express my support in what they've mentioned previously in uh, amending and including the off-site consumption as well as activating a pilot, um, pilot program um, in file ID 2023-01102, which will allow consumption at special events, consumption lounges within the city of Sacramento if this were to be amended and with the inclusion of the off-site consumption as proposed, um, it will allow the com community to create a secure environment where cannabis education may take place, support cannabis decriminalization and reformation, and raise public knowledge of cannabis issues. Recognizing the double standards, that double standards exist is a step towards cannabis decriminalization and cannabis reformation. It is unjust to condemn users of cannabis and their allies from experiencing public social gatherings while enjoying their cannabis product of choice. In comparison, alcohol in the brewery scene or the bar scene where people above the age of 21 are allowed to create public environments where social gatherings may be held with their alcoholic product of choice. This fails to include those that abstain from alcohol consumption and prefer to consume cannabis with few to no options for socializing in a safe and public vicinities. Upon endorsement of this file with the mentioned amendments, it will serve purpose to create a secure environment where the community is allowed to raise public knowledge of cannabis, topics such as cannabis issues, cannabis policy, cannabis. Thank you for your comments. Your time is now complete. Thank you for your time. Our next speaker is Ignacio. Hello, Council. My name is Ignacio, and uh, everyone knows me in my professional space as Nacho. <clears throat> I'm a father of four, a small business owner, a brand developer, and a fellow advocate in the space for cannabis equality. I'm also a board member on, of the ongoing development for 1111. I am neither a stakeholder or an owner. This is big for us. I just want you to know thank you for allowing us this space for everyone to come in here because we all, this is our livelihood. This is not something we just came up with out of nowhere, but our livelihood is counted on. Every day we're allowed to have an equal opportunity in a space that we all believe we deserve. There's a lot of people have, who have had the cash, the revenue, to have easy access to places like this. And a lot of us are not from those spaces, but we do come from the culture, from the community, and then I just want to come get, in a short descriptive words, I'm here to suggest the amendment of the proposal said from Davina Smith to keep an open mind to offsite consumption and propose that we use a pilot program to assist in the already ongoing process that have been leading the way in the development of consumption within city limits and around the state, not just here in Sacramento. We are the city of trees and we will always remain the example for the rest of the people out there. Just want to say that. 
I utilize spaces like 1111 and other consumption areas to help alleviate the heightening costs around owning a storefront. My whole professional livelihood depends on me being able to utilize spaces like said so to be able to keep myself in a career that has nothing but been detrimental to me and my family and others in my space. At whatever cost, I represent not only the black and brown, but also the underserved community within this space. Thank you, guys. Our next speaker is Carlos Magano, followed by Luke Medina from Aisha Bahadur. Hello, my name is Carlos Magana. I am actually an educator of 15 years that made a successful transition into the cannabis community here in Sacramento. I am vice president of sales for a brand called High Power. Um, and the passion that you see with Notch um, is the passion that everyone has here today. So ditto on what everybody else said. Um, we <laughs> Elevens has provided a tremendous place for me to grow as an individual in a new space. I am Canna Cardos within the community. But let's go. But what this has provided is a safe spot for us to, to network, right? I, you can go to a local bar. I've had meetings with my fellow teachers, with my administrators here in Sacramento when we were, we were, um, uh, doing a seminar at the convention center for uh, PBIS, right? Um, and we were able to assemble and drink and communicate and, and throw our values out there and what our passion is about, right? What we're passionate about. So these uh, off-site uh, consumption areas allow us to network in a safe community. I, I can't safely uh, network at a bar or anywhere else when we are definitely needing an area to safely consume and to safely try product, right? So just like a person's able to bring their wine to a certain event and everyone to try, same thing as well. Um, what it is is just an area to communicate, to network, and to safely consume cannabis. Thank you for your time. Davina, I appreciate all the reports. It was great. And all the council, thank you for your time as well. Thank you for your time. Luke Medina, followed by Maisha. All right, my name is Luke, and I am also a part of the 1111 team. Um, I also have been throwing private consumption events for the last few years, um, and having places like 1111 and in other counties, other regions, um, is very important because like what was stated with Davina with her beautiful list of areas we cannot consume, we need areas that we can. Um, especially when we get into those more densely populated regions like LA, San Francisco, and the places that she showed. Um, it's either walk on the street corner and do it or having a safe space. And um, another point that's been brought up multiple times is that there's gonna be needed uh, a lot of amendments made for these storefronts to be even able to have consumption lounges. So just like the rest of us are asking is just open it up to not just storefronts in the core, but also please open it up to pilot programs that already exist and that are leading the forefront on uh, positive examples on what can happen. 
Another point that was brought up was large-scale events um, at Cal Expo and stuff like that. Um, that usually tends to have more of the party environment. And my, myself personally, I throw education-based events. So it's very important for me to be able to have smaller-scale events where we can educate people. And it's more inviting, per se, rather than having to purchase this overly inflated ticket price to go to some large event. Uh, we want things that are a little more private and friendly. Um, and I guess I'll just leave it on. The last point is uh, don't penalize those of us that are putting ourselves out in the forefront um, of this issue. Give us a chance to. And we're just asking you to work with us, not against us. But again, I think we're all saying the same thing, is that we just want access to safe spaces to consume. So thank you for your time. Maisha. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Maisha Bahati. I am the CEO of Crystal Nugs. I currently operate a delivery service. And in the next 30 days, I'll be opening up a storefront dispensary yeah. at, <laughs> thank you, at 2300 J Street. Um, I am in support of on-site consumption. I'm in support of all consumption and events outside of Cal Expo. For my business model, I am interested in a uh, lounge attached to a dispensary because I do have the space at my location. Um, I believe that is the responsibility of the city to provide safe spaces. By next year, there are going to be 40 dispensaries and over 60 deliveries. That's 100 places to purchase cannabis, but yet there's not one single place where you can legally consume. And I just think that's a, that's a problem. Uh, the reality is cannabis, like any other industry, it's growing. And if you're going to allow it and if you're going to continue to permit businesses, you have to grow with that industry. Uh, so I am in definite support of that. I also want to piggyback on Cal Expo. I held the cannabis event organizer license for three years. Last month, I decided to not renew it because I couldn't. It just didn't make sense to pay $4,000 a year for a license that I have been unable to use. I have worked with Cal Expo for the last three years and gotten absolutely nowhere. It's actually, it's actually been easier for me to open up this dispensary than it has been to plan an event with Cal Expo. I spoke with the... I spoke with the CEO of Cal Expo in November, Tom Martinez, to schedule an event for this year. I was told that all the allotted events for cannabis were, were folded up. I haven't seen one cannabis event at Cal Expo. I also was told that they're really interested in larger scale events. I was trying to put on a comedy show for 3,000 people. He told me that it would not be fiscally responsible to do that at Cal Expo. So please, please authorize on-site consumption and events outside of Cal Expo. Thank you. Our next speaker is Risa, followed by Faith Galati, then Ashley Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, council members. My name is Risa Roque. I'm speaking on behalf of Lumpy's Flowers, a local craft cannabis cultivator and distributor. I want to comment on behalf of standalone on-site consumption lounges. Uh, the Medicinal Adult Use Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act of California controls and regulates cultivation, distribution, transportation, storage, manufacturing, processing, and sale of cannabis and cannabis products. Similarly, you need a valid DCC license to cultivate, distribute, manufacture, test, retail, or hold an event where cannabis will be sold. Consumption is not regulated by the state, other than by limiting age and location. So, it is not required to provide uh, a license, is not required to provide a space for the safe consumption of cannabis, which is legal for adults over 21, as is alcohol and tobacco. 
We believe that this moves jurisdiction of consumption-only lounges to the local government, and it is entirely the city's power to allow these spaces to be standalone businesses. In short, if you wanted to, you would. Anyway, there is already a mechanism in place for the city to regulate these businesses in the form of business operating permits issued to cannabis businesses. These permits require submission of business plans and budgets to the city and access to the premises for surprise inspections. The city would benefit financially through BOP fees, cannabis BOP taxes, and increased revenues to all cannabis businesses, in addition to making Sacramento a destination for cannabis tourism. Cannabis is a major industry in Sacramento that contributes millions of dollars a year in BOP taxes alone, not including the many ancillary businesses and jobs it creates. To not make standalone cannabis lounges because nobody else has done it before is silly. Sacramento has always been in the forefront of the cannabis regulation. Let's continue to do so. Thank you. Our next speaker is Ashley Fitzgerald. Okay, wonderful. Hi, my name is Faith Galati. I'm the executive director of Breakthrough Sacramento. We're a year-round tuition-free college prep program for under-resourced youth. We serve about 300 students in, uh, who attend Title I schools, and we help them get to and through college. We're also a pre-professional training program for future diverse educators, because education is what I'm all about. Then I'm here to tell you that as far as I'm concerned, everything that I do is started with one question, what's best for the kids? Now, I'm going to tell you also a bit about myself. I grew up in the 70s. That's also known as the period of time where we believed in better living through chemicals. So I understand the industry. I have no opposition whatsoever to the adult use of marijuana. Uh, and I do think that they need a free and safe place to use. What I do hear and what I am reading is it's kind of a mess that there are a lot of, there's a lot of production out there that is not legal, that's pushing down their prices and they're paying high taxes. They want an opportunity to make a living and to be able to use their products. What I'm concerned about is the health and safety of children. So when we're looking at opportunities, uh, I just want to make sure that I bring up to you the kids and those voices because we've got to play the long game here, folks. And that is, as we're expanding, let's always be as cautious as we can and do it properly so that our kids are safe. Now, I recruit children into the program for free for six years. They get everything they need to succeed. What I am finding, though, is when I interview kids in this year, the sixth graders, one-third of them told me that they are experiencing vaping in their schools, in bathrooms, in elementary schools. So I'm just asking you, let's make sure we're doing our due diligence for the Clean Area Act and for checking the health and safety um, for our community and make sure that we're protecting our children from exposure. Thank you for your comment. Your time is complete. <laughs> Next, we have Ashley Fitzgerald, followed by Savannah Kershaw, then J.P. Tantarelli. My name is Ashley Fitzgerald, and I'm the owner of my small business, Cannamilf LLC. That's Canna Moms in Love with Flour. Um, <laughs> a little background. In October 2021, I was hit by a drunk driver. I almost lost my life. Luckily, I didn't. Uh, I just left it with a broken foot, dislocated hip, and head trauma. Doctors pushed me to take narcotics, but instead, I healed within two years, almost two years, next month, two years, 
um, with just the usage of cannabis without the consumption. I'm just not understanding the legalizing and not the consumption. I don't understand a lot of things lately, but after my accident, I began to pay attention to everything. And everywhere I went, people, people were allowed to consume alcohol, even in places where there are children allowed to be, such as restaurants, fairs, and festivals. I was flabbergasted after realizing that even though le- cannabis is legalized, the consumption's not. It just doesn't make sense. Not, it, we got to make it make sense. So I just have one question. How quickly do you think we could move forward, especially with the taxes that will come from cannabis off-site consumption? Oh. And ditto to what everybody else said and what everybody else is going to say. Okay. Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is Savannah. Hi there. How's it going? Um, So I am originally not from California. Uh, I came all the way from Texas. I drove myself here about two years ago. And I will say that, like, something that I have definitely acknowledged uh, in my lifetime has been the access to you know, actual legal cannabis, stuff that's tested, stuff that's regulated um, in a safe way that, you know, I wasn't able to purchase at a dispensary until I was 21, Um, just like I wasn't able to have alcohol until I was 21. But there are a lot of places that I can go to indulge in alcohol, and there kind of isn't any sort of acknowledgement that, like, that's an unsafe sort of activity where I feel like just like with cannabis, you are responsible for your own consumption and the safety that, you know, you put on other people if you're driving, if you're, if you're going to consume. And I just feel like from what I've witnessed in the uh, cannabis industry, um, people are way looking out for each other way more uh, than they are whenever someone's consuming alcohol. And especially with off-site consumption, like it provides people who don't have access to a safe place to smoke or prevents them from putting themselves in a sort of situation where they can legally be held accountable for something that could easily be prevented. Um, Just allowing people to gather and congregate in a positive way. Everyone here has been extremely friendly and very aware of, you know, the actual processes that are involved uh, coming here today. So I really do appreciate all of the work that Davina has put in. Uh, There wasn't a lot that I, you know, argued against, but I do definitely think that we should... uh, you know, include people that are trying to come here and experience different things. Uh, I just think it's really, really important uh, to not go negative about it. So thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. Next is J.P. Tatarelli, followed Board by members, Richard thank Miller. Thank you for having me here today and uh, representing the people behind me. Uh, never in my wildest dreams 45 years ago when I was in my 20s would I think I'd be doing something like this. Believe me, uh, I'm here to advocate for medical marijuana consumption. I haven't heard a lot of that today. Medical marijuana opened the door for recreational, and I don't want it to close the door for medical now. I need a place to smoke my medicine. I don't own a car. My apartment is non-smoking, and it's non-drugs. There's actually no legal place for me to smoke my medicine. 
There are numerous people who are suffering from anxiety through chemotherapy, uh, AIDS, uh, or HD, uh, HIV positive people who have absolutely nothing, uh, nowhere to smoke their, their medicine. Unlike Oregon, which separates and differentiates medical marijuana from recreational marijuana, and there is a big difference. Am I being heard? I mean, I'm not sure. Okay, I'm not hearing myself. Uh, not only in price, but in potency as well. It's cost me considerably more to consume same amount of edibles because the dosing has gone down, limited at 100, where prior to recreational marijuana being legalized, we had no problem with the dosing and the pricing was quite different as well. So a lounge at the very least for people who maintain their medical card, which I've had since its inception, would be much appreciated. And I strongly urge you give this some consideration in your decision moving forward. Thank you for your time. We have Richard Miller, followed by Javier Hernandez, then A.G. O'Mallon. Good afternoon. Richard Miller from Americans for Safe Access. I am on the steering committee for the advisory committee here in California. Like most of you on the diocese, I have been throughout the state of California, and I had visited a number of consumption lounges in Palm Desert, Palm Springs, West Hollywood, which is highly concentrated with residential units behind those businesses, as well as San Francisco and Oakland. I had started this back in 1991, working with Dennis Perone in San Francisco and working with HIV and AIDS patients. At that time, we did have a dispensary. It was called the San Francisco Buyers Club. It was a place where all patients could meet. They could get the information and understanding on the effects of can cannabis, cannabinoids and terpenes and the pharmacological effects to the body. This was very instrumental in moving this industry forward and we must never forget the patients. They should never be left behind. With so many of those patients that are affected by rental agreements not allowing them and some of those being subsidized by federal housing assistance programs do not have the ability to medicate in their facilities and those seniors that are the number one fastest growing to participate in cannabis for their health and well-being do not have access in those retirement homes or those facilities that are assisted living they must go outside their facility so I say this to you today, it is very imperative that we move this forward to protect those individuals, those patients, and those consumers that don't have the ability to medicate within their, their surroundings and have a safe and responsible place where they can medicate, get the education to understand the pharmacological effects of cannabis, and furthermore, giving the ability to have somebody to talk and walk them through. I would ask that you not put a limit on. Thank you for your comment. Your time is now complete. Our next speaker is Javier. Uh, hello, my name is Javier Hernandez. I'm a founder operator of Homebrew, a legacy delivery company founded here in 2015 and are still operating. It's without a doubt that we need to create the framework to our city uh, to give our citizens safe access to, uh, and a place to consume. 
but I cannot support this in its current form. The exclusion of off-site consumption lounges in this proposal raises concern, as you just heard by everybody. To ensure the lowest barriers of entry and avoid ignoring existing operators within the city, we propose allowing off-site consumption. Many storefront retailers have expressed concern about safety and space, which could be alleviated by allowing them to have a separate space for consumption as well. Many deliveries have expressed the desire to have an opportunity to cultivate deeper relationships with their community, and on-site consumption is that path forward. I do believe that it's important to require a cannabis retail license for participation in these programs, as navigating through the legal cannabis is something that's not easy to do, and we want this to be piloted by those that we know can run a business compliantly. This is currently allowed by the state with any retail license, not just storefronts. Equity is the cornerstone of our cannabis industry, and it should remain that way. We advocate for an open-to-all approach, both priority given to core members. The core community sees on-site consumption as an opportunity in line with recommendations from the EPS study presented to this committee in 2022. The decisions we make today have the power to shape our cannabis landscape for years to come. These decisions are much like the ones that were made in 2017, where our city was poised to only allow storefront retailers to deliver. The allowance for non-storefront license types is the sole reason why I am here and all other and all, most of these other impassioned people stand here today as licensed local small business operators. Let us prioritize inclusivity, equity, and thoughtful regulation as we pave the way for responsible, thriving consumption in our city. Thank you. Our next speaker is Javier, followed by AJ O'Mellon. I'm sorry, that was Javier. Yep. Our next speaker is AJ O'Mellon, followed by Mindy Galloway, then Adiola Adipipe. Hi, my name is AJ O'Mellon. I am a cannabis operator here in the Sacramento community. I am in support of everything everyone said already. Uh, please allow the people that are already in the mix making waves and providing a safe space to continue to do that for people uh, that don't have the safe space. Um, it's our lifestyle, and this is our community. We show up for each other. It is a tight-knit community. Uh, we breed love, and we push love in our community. And that's all we're really asking for, is everyone to to just support our lifestyle. We let a lot of people live their lifestyle, whether casinos, strip clubs, bars, everything, that's their vice. Ours is community, is getting together and being one and really expressing our ideas and, our, and just building our network and loving each other. So just asking here today, respect our lifestyles and let us, let us be. Thank you. Where is Mindy Galloway? As uh, she comes up, I just want to give you a halftime score. We have 16 more speakers to go, and then we'll be able to go to the council to have a conversation. So thank you very much for coming out and speaking. Thank you, um, Chair and, and Council Members. My name is Mindy Galloway. I've had over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, five years as CEO of manufacturing, and soon to open a storefront dispensary in the next month. So in my shared manufacturing incubator, I have 10 people trying to get their licenses. Nine of those people are core members. My goal is to create economic stability and success for the core community. And all brands, the manufacturers, the distributors, the cultivators, they need standalone spaces and consumption spaces to promote their brands. It is very difficult. There's over 2,000 brands in, in California 32 dispensaries in Sacramento. You go to a dispensary, what do they want? Brand recognition. You to have all these people wanting your products. How do you do that? You need a space of education to promote your brand, to help people understand what your products are, and to have the bud tenders try your products as well. 
the spaces allow for those and I support as a dispensary storefront owner support standalone consumption spaces and I hope that you would consider a pilot program framework from people that already know what they're doing and have success so that we can create success in our brands which will support the core community and people that are coming after us as well. I also urge you to not make the regulations and the restrictions of these consumption lounges cost millions of dollars and it will limit and create barriers to people that really um, have the ability to do this. So something that's safe and effective, I understand, but also something that will not limit the barriers to entry. Um, Thank you so much for your time and thank you for considering this. Um, please do not limit to just Cal Expo and allow us to be able to have smaller events that support smaller brands, core brands, and the people of Sacramento also. Thank you. Our next speaker is Adiola Dype, followed by Michael Duncan, then Albert Titman. Hello, my name is Adiola Adedipe. I am a manufacturing operator, soon to be, through Camia with Aidens Relief. I'm a counselor also at a therapeutic alternative, so I'm here to stand by as a healer and for our medical community. I'm here to break the negative stigma when it comes to cannabis. There are so many healing spaces and cannabis is there, either if it's therapy, yoga, pet gatherings, spoken word spaces, you're gonna find cannabis somewhere in the space. As a parent, I held my son when he was diagnosed with T-cell leukemia in 2016 and had three days to live. My perspective on cannabis has changed significantly. I support consumption lounges. My hope is that we get to a place where we're at least treated like the beer and wine industry, even though cannabis has been proven to have medical benefits, not only when it comes to consumption lounges, but also our taxes. There are so many races, there's so much racism and segregation in the cannabis industry that we are faced with so many barriers. In order to advocate for change in the cannabis, consumption lounges need to be a part of our future, like Maisha mentioned. In Sacramento, we are behind compared to LA and San Francisco with opportunities for cannabis industry. I am a core graduate and I believe that we should approve for core and also for all. I believe that there should be guidelines when it comes to public safety, when it comes to large volume spaces, but when it comes to small businesses or spaces where people just want to consume cannabis, I feel like we should break the stigma when it comes to, I can have a glass of wine to unwind, but cannabis. Thank you for your comments. Your time is now complete. Our next speaker is Michael Duncan, followed by Albert and then Jay Johnson. of Native Dads Network. Um, and I'm going to say thank you for today. Today has been very educational on every level. Um, even listened to the presentation earlier. There were some holes in it. Um, but it did enlighten me in, in some, in some um, aspect of you know, our view, a Native Dads view, opposing um, a lounge at this time. You know, um, number one, I'm a Round Valley tribal member. I'm, uh, I'm Maidu, Wintu, Wailaki. I'm a father's side on Western Bench of Shoni Tomoke on my mother's side. I'm also a substance abuse counselor. Um, I have 12 years of experience of substance abuse counselor and also a DUI counselor for five of those uh, 12 years that I've been um, working in this, in this city here. Um, I'm here to represent um, my children, uh, my grandchildren, and the future generations. 
Um, the reason how I got involved with um, just paying attention to what happens in the cannabis, and, and, and first, I'll say this first, I'm not against the cannabis movement at all, but well, I will say how I got involved is my, my, uh, my child got caught at school with uh, medical marijuana, and, and after talking to him, there was a whole list of how they were getting it um, inside the schools. And so with that impact, um, we started understanding that even listening to the, uh, I'm running out of time already. But um, so we started listening about the, uh, the impact. You know, there's um, consumption lounges using millions of dollars to open these lounges, which it will cost. That means they need generational consumers. That means the marketing tactics that are being um, used to um, have um, um, to target our youth is is real. It happens, and and so I really want to talk about that because we've been doing it, did our own listening sessions in our communities, in tribal communities, and we've um, we found that um, kids are using as early as seven to nine now, seven to nine through uh, through vaping, and also the increase of pregnant women were using because they felt it was safe to use while pregnant, and then also um, there's. Thank you for your comment. Your time is now complete. Our next speaker is Albert, followed by Jay Johnson. Good afternoon, committee. I want to just offer gratitude for allowing us to come and share a little piece of our heart. Um, Ms. Valenzuela, you know, I have a lot of respect for you and your work. You know that. And I just want to um, also recognize our relatives here who are um, entrepreneurs in this uh, industry. Um, I'm a former consumer of cannabis. I began smoking cannabis at the age of 10, and it was introduced to me by my relatives. Um, and it was illegal at the time. Nonetheless, didn't stop anybody from growing on our reservations, our rancherias, or in other areas where we found green bud. Um, today, I'm the deputy director of an organization called the Native Dads Network, and I've been working in the field of addiction treatment for the past 20 years. Most of that time has been in tribal community. And I will really testify to the fact that the new cannabis movement is linked to tribal communities across the state of California, especially the most impoverished and rural and, and, and uh, frontier tribal communities. What you don't see and what I haven't heard at all is the impact of our tribal communities on this new gold rush, similar to the gold rush way back when, alcohol movement and tobacco movement. It has grossly impacted tribal communities, especially our youth. So I'm asking you to consider inviting medical experts, mental health experts, substance use treatment experts, and myself as a community advisory person to, um, to assist before you make a final decision uh, on, on you know, whatever it is that's being requested here today. So thank you for my time. I appreciate you. Our next speaker is Jay Johnson, followed by Corey Burgess, then Letitia Aguilar. Hey, Council. How's it going? I'm Jay, owner CEO of Trees Knowledge Deliveries, and I know you guys have heard a lot today over 30 speakers, so I'll start off with this. You know, I beat my drum on taxes. That's the biggest thing facing our industry, but right after that, it's access. And that's what we're talking about here today, is access for us to have an access to a new license and access to the op opportunity to hold events at more than just Cal Expo. I don't care what that water tower says, that when you pull into Sacramento, we will always be known as the city of trees. 
and Sacramento has to lead in that regard. Like some of my other speakers said, you have San Francisco, you have San Diego, you have Long Beach, you have Las Vegas. You guys have a platform to look at on how we need to structure our consumption spaces. We need to have them everywhere because a lot of people don't have access at a place to consume safely. If you want to see this, just wait till this meeting goes out and walk over to Cesar Chavez Park. A lot of us will be over there consuming because that's the only place we can go. And that's not okay because you have kids walking through, you have the public walking through. So all we're asking for is the legal right opportunity to do it. And I want to challenge you as council to do three things. I want you to look over Davina's study, the information that she had in there. If you haven't already, go back and look at the EPS study that they did in 2022. We're not a negative blight on any neighborhood that we're into. Actually, we hire from the neighborhood, we pay a significant portion of the taxes, and we are the most dynamic operators that I've ever seen in small business. If you can make it in this business, you can make it anywhere because we go up a lot of hills. So in the last, and then one more thing, you know, I said three things. Each one of you district leaders should actually come out to the audience and bring one of us up for private, a private meeting just to see how it really works. Because with all those numbers and scientific, there's the real world and how this really works in the real world opportunity. So use us as a beacon of information. We are here for you guys. And um, I mean, you guys don't see any other turnout like this for any other meeting, so it's here. <laughs> Our next speaker is Corey Burgess. Members of the City Council, my name is Corey Burgess, and on behalf of my organization, Pro Youth and Families, I come here today to express the urge to not move forward with the permitting of cannabis consumption lounges in our city. As an organization, we strive to inspire, educate, and mobilize the next generation as our mission statement speaks directly to building a healthier future for themselves, their families, and their communities. The implementation of cannabis lounges in Sacramento County will not only affect one's employees by the exposure of secondhand smoke, but also their customers and guests. Our concern is that we will see more under the influence driving, more car accidents and pedestrian accidents. When do we ask ourselves, what's the cost? We have traveled down the road of cigarettes, yet we have forgotten about the repercussions. Such an action by the city council would undermine this progress and would increase health risks for heart attacks, heart disease, stroke, and cancer for employees and customers. Decades of research have shown that ventilation systems do not reduce toxic levels with tobacco smoke, like tobacco, um, and many harmful constitu constituents found in cannabis can be filtered out through the same systems. What message does it send to our youth by, about using marijuana? Recently at the R Street Night Market, an event held on R Street that was advertised by, for all age ranges had marijuana providers giving free bong rips with another gentleman with a large bag of weed on the table. For visual purposes, imagine a container full of cheese balls from a grocery store and cut it in half. I've watched my friends go from becoming solely addicted to marijuana to using the last $10 on a joint. From the age of 15 to 22, I can no longer recognize those individuals I knew so well. Council members, it sends a message that it's, safe to, it's a safe product to consume, whether the age requirement is met or not. We must face this issue. On behalf of Pro Youth and Families, we ask that the council holds a special hearing on, and includes our health experts from the county, statement and local hospitals. Having, having health experts included in this conversation will allow members to assess this proposal from different lenses. As an organization, and most importantly, as members of the community, we look forward to your reconsideration. Thank you. Okay, everybody's going to get a chance to speak. It takes a lot of courage to come up in a room of folks that you know don't agree with you. So let's let everybody speak, okay? Thank you. Our next speaker is Leticia, followed by Tona Miranda, Crystal Harding. Sinthamana, my name is Leticia Aguilar. I am a tribal member of Pinoleville Pummel Nation. 
the CEO of Native Sister Circle, a youth organization rooted in Sacramento. I am a former marijuana user, but mostly import, mo most importantly, I'm a mother of three, born and raised in Sacramento. As a mother and a businesswoman, my work focuses deeply on the ongoing damage caused by addiction and overconsumption of control controlled substances. As a Native American mother, I have deep concerns about the social consumption of marijuana at special events and lounges. lounges. While I understand that some may view it as recreational, a recreational activity, there are significant reasons as to why I oppose this practice. Firstly, marijuana is not a plant that is native to this area, so it is crucial to acknowledge the potential harm to our communities. Statistics show that Native Americans already face higher rates of substance abuse and addiction um, that is larger than many other groups. Introducing marijuana into social settings may exacerbate these issues, leading further to health and social problems and over-policing. Furthermore, marijuana has been proven to have detrimental effects on brain development, especially in young people. Studies indicate that regular use during adolescence can lead to cognitive impairments and reduce education attainment, affecting the future prospects of our youth. Let's keep in mind the brain is not fully developed at 21 and we recognize youth up to age 24, and in some cases. Thank you for your comment. Your time is now complete. Our next speaker is Tona. Hello, I'm Miranda. I am a Blackfoot and Yoeme from the Tribal Nations, and born and raised in Del Paso Heights. My family's been there for over 50 years. I was asked to, um, by Dr. Silver to come read a statement on her behalf. I am delivering this comment for Dr. Silver, a pediatrician and senior advisor at the Public Health Institute and clinical professor at UCSF, who could not attend today. As pediatricians, we are deeply concerned that the next generation not grow up surrounded by smoke. Coughing every night and washing the smell of tobacco from my clothes is a potent memory of my youth. With smoke-free air, my symptoms immediately disappeared. In contrast, children and yours have grown up in smoke-free world. Our workplaces, including restaurants and bars and entertainment venues, have long been free of smoke and one of the greatest public health triumphs of our past century. Allowing cannabis on site lounges and, worse yet, restaurants will expose workers to harmful hand Secondhand cannabis smoke. Cannabis smoke is also harmful to placenta and developing child, yet pregnant workers will be forced to expose developing infants or lose their jobs. Increase motor vehicle collisions as cannabis cons consumers go home and create undesirable burdens for local government, including police, highway patrol, EMS, and ERs. Rooms filled with cannabis smoke and vapor pose significant threats to anyone that that an environment suggests that exposure to secondhand smoke, cannabis, or vapor is safe or misleading. Like tobacco smoke, it is also clear that engineering and ventilation techniques cannot reduce this pollution to healthy levels and complete smoke-free policies are the only way to provide healthy indoor environments. Cannabis businesses should remain specialized establishments to provide legal access to cannabis, but not become lounges, restaurants, cannabis bars, or convenience store pushing 
consumption. Even Amsterdam, the iconic epic center of cannabis cafes, is rethinking its approach. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Crystal Harding, followed by Cynthia Mumford, then Jim Kenny. Good afternoon, members of City Council Law and Legislation Committee. My name is Crystal Harding. I'm speaking on behalf of Public Health Advocates. We bring a public health lens to today's most pressing problems, helping communities to pass laws, reform systems, and establish norms that foster justice, equity, and health. For decades, public health advocates fought to protect people from the health risks associated with smoking and secondhand smoke, in addition to the fight to promote clean indoor air. Public health advocates oppose the permitting of cannabis consumption lounges, as such an action by the city council would undermine this progress and would increase health risks for health heart attacks, heart disease, stroke, asthma, and cancer for employees and consumers. Most importantly, the most vulnerable unborn children impacting low birth weight and development, which disproportionately affect black indigenous people of color. Employees would be at particular risk as, as they would breathe in secondhand smoke throughout their shifts. Extensive research has shown that ventilation systems do not reduce toxic levels of particulate matter in secondhand tobacco smoke, and many of the harmful constituents found, constituents found in cannabis smoke cannot be eliminated through air ventilation systems or air cleaning technologies. There is absolutely no safe level of exposure to secondhand smoke. Thank you in a, for your consideration, for our views on this important matter as we change laws and expand possibilities. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Cynthia Mumford, followed by Jim Ketty, then Rhonda Ernest. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I'm, the executive, um, I'm Cynthia Mumford, the executive director of Omni Youth Programs, which is a local nonprofit providing youth drug prevention since 1979. So I'm here to represent the youth. We are asked regularly to provide services to public schools due to the large number of youth using marijuana on campus, which we heard about from another presenters. And those numbers of open use uh, in large numbers increased dramatically once recreational marijuana was legalized. Notably, 90% of people seeking help for addiction started using before they were 21. So, the fact that youth drug use is not affected because outlets only sell to those over 21 is not consistent with what is actually happening. Um, marijuana today is not the same drug it used to be, certainly not in my day, when the THC content was about 3%. It increased to about 8% in the early 2000s. And now, in plant form, 30%, but in other forms, up to 99% THC today. It's a very different percentage. And youth sincerely think that it is safe and safe for them because, youth, because parents would not have ever made it legal otherwise. So to help understand the impact on youth, let's look at alcohol for just a moment, which is the most used drug by youth. Research shows that youth alcohol use is higher when there are more outlets to buy and more alcohol ads and signage. So that's why we have laws that don't allow alcohol outlets or signs near schools. So touching on that concept with marijuana, the Rand Corporation found that the density of marijuana outlets is associated with more and higher use among those under 21 years. 
Thank you for your comment. Your time is now complete. Our next speaker is Jem Ketty, followed by Rana Ernest, then Zion Todesi. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Jim Ketty, the Executive Director of Youth Forward. Uh, the initial city staff report looked at cannabis lounges only as an economic development issue. This is clearly not just an economics issue, but also one with serious health implications. As a council, you are responsible not only for furthering economic development, but for the larger welfare of the city. Before moving forward on the lounge issue, I request that the council hold a briefing on the health issues related to both medical and to recreational cannabis use. Unfortunately, the city does not have a public health unit. I suggest you call upon Sac County Public Health and the State Department of Public Health to join you at a future meeting. By holding such a hearing, you would be making an informed decision about cannabis lounges in service of our larger community. I would like to see a motion today on that recommendation. Finally, I want to share a few thoughts from my experience as a former member of the State Health Commission that oversees tobacco control. I helped develop the part of the state plan that looks at the intersections between tobacco and cannabis use among young adults and the renormalization of smoking. Young people who vape or smoke cannabis are more likely to start vaping nicotine or smoking cigarettes and vice versa. In health research, this is referred to as dual use and sequential use. Cannabis lounges represent another step forward in renormalizing smoking. Uh, we see this everywhere. We saw it at the night market two weeks ago where in our street cannabis businesses handed out samples and cannabis swag and people smoke cannabis openly as children and families pass by. It took decades to win the fight for clean air and to eliminate secondhand smoke. Now we are going backward. Cannabis lounges are part of that gradual process to renormalize smoking and the breathing in of toxic secondhand smoke. Uh, more cannabis equals more smoking, equals more secondhand smoke, and that of course equals more chronic health conditions in our community. Thank you. Our next speaker is Rhonda, followed by Zion, then John Long. Greetings, Madam Chair and community members. Committee members, I'm sorry. My name is Rhonda Ernest, and I am the CEO of NH Logistics LLC Natural High here in Sacramento District 5, a non-storefront dispensary, soon to add manufacturing and distribution under one roof. I am a sole owner, a social equity core certified black woman-owned business. I will not repeat all the many compelling reasons why we have a policy for core. I will simply urge you, urge you to keep the city's commitment to being intentional about implementing CORE as a policy. Over 300 people in Sacramento have been certified as eligible CORE, yet the policy goal of having us hold 50% of all license is nowhere near being achieved. Less than 9% of all cannabis license in city, the city are held by um, CORE participants. It is not only critical that the city remove the regulatory, zoning, tax, and access to capital barrier faced by CORE, it is time for the city to exclusively award new license types to CORE, as well as all license until the city has achieved its 50% policy goal. I urge the committee and the full council to award all consumption lounges and event permit exclusively to CORE, we urge the committee to support awarding consumption permits for non-storefront as well as um, storefront dispensary operators with CORE. I just think that we are a priority. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. 
Our next speaker. Hi, Katie. Hi, everyone. And uh, thank you for having us. And I am the founder and the CEO of Shasha Money Institute in Micro. And I have that on uh, Eric's uh, District uh, 7 and District 5. So um, Shasha Money means God-given. So the reason why I call this Shasha Money is cannabis is a God-given plant. And the Rastafarian practice is an herb and also a medicine. That's why I call Shasha Money is an alternative holistic medicine. And in order to take that uh, stigma around what cannabis is. So, uh, and I, I like what uh, Divina came up with all the, uh, you know, the, the finding, but I believe equal opportunity when it comes to giving that license, the lounge license across, not just for dispensary, I'm building uh, um, on, a, on my land, on three acre of land, uh, they have given me a CUP for, for uh, health and wellness, as well as uh, event. So if I don't get that opportunity to apply for the uh, lounging, then I will be left behind like everybody else. So I believe here in California, the tax money is enough for all of us, for core and for underserved, underrepresented community who are fighting, like my friends, uh, Isaac and his wife. So it is enough for all of us that here we are fighting to get into the cannabis industry through lounge, through delivery, dispensary, and everything, that I believe if you use the appropriate, the tax money that you collect from the, from, uh, the state, that should be enough for all of us to thrive here in Sacramento. So please consider it to give us not just for dispensary, but for all across the small businesses in the cannabis industry. Thank you for your comment. Our next speaker is John Long, followed by our last speaker is Mike Snow. Hi, um, Council. Thank you very much. My name is John Long. I'm the owner of SkyCloud and the owner of three cannabis delivery services, not just one. Um, but just want to let you guys know, like, the biggest hurdle that's going to be with this process is the real estate and the zoning. The problem is going to be really with the real estate, because when you guys start regulating this, um, back when the 30 that was created, the 30 dispensaries, where are you going to be putting these locations at? Because the regulatory service right now does not fit for K Street, for 16th, for all of the zones that you guys are opening up. So you're going to have to revisit, basically, rolling back some of the uh, regulations that you guys are enforcing on the type of real estate that everybody is going for. Um, the other thing is um, the regulations. Please do not overregulate this any further than what we're already going through right now because we're just selling cannabis. We're not doing anything illegal. So um, Davina gave a very good presentation, as you know. This is a very positive situation. It's not a negative one. And I give her and her um, people accolade for, you know, coming up with the studies and coming up with this, um, the information that helps us know that, hey, there are other cities and states that, there's other cities and states that are actually ahead of us right now. So what are we doing? Like, 
there's people shooting up heron and there's fentanyl going on out there right now. I just stepped over a guy coming over here, you know, coming down the street and I'm like, we can't consume in our own locations or in our apartments and so forth. It just came, seems kind of absurd. Uh, but for right now, I support this uh, motion and I hope you guys, you know, look into the things that I just talked about. Thank, Thank you for your comment. Your time's not complete. Our next speaker. Our last speaker is Mike Snell. All right, uh, good afternoon, Long Ledge. I stand before you, uh, owner of Off the Charts, a uh, core member, um, and I stand before you in this position because of uh, the opportunities presented from the city as, in the pilot program and in that format, uh, such as the core program. Um, even furthermore, I'm inspired by getting involved with, with community because of the pilot program, the core community. Um, I mean, with even people that are supposed to be my competitors, I'm good friends with. Uh, we, we coordinate together and work with and find ways to work better with the city. Um, um, and it's unfortunate the, the response from, you know, select community members that feel the, the, that are afraid of child exposure and so on and so forth. We have the same battle with alcohol and prescription pills. Um, cannabis is not a violent substance like alcohol. It's not a violent substance like cocaine. It's not a violent substance like heroin. Um, it's a plant. Um, and we are in this position of prohibition because of a racially driven, racially driven um, uh, rhetoric as far as prohibition, while alcohol run, still runs rampant. Um, you look at the Super Bowl commercial every year. What do you see? Alcohol. So the exposure to it and exposure to cannabis isn't going to stop the exposure to alcohol and the how freely it runs in our grocery stores, our gas stations, our Super Bowl commercials. It's everywhere. So we just need a safe place for people that are renting. Currently, we're dealing with housing issues, so we don't need another thing that will put people on the street for just simply trying to, like my gentleman here, that was, uh, that's, it's medicine to him. Um, my mother's battling cancer, but obviously I can't even bring her CBD just to mitigate pain uh, because obviously we're still dealing with the conflict of federal laws and, and what's locally allowed in California. Um, and so I just ask that we don't overregulate it. We don't need another RFQ because that, that tore the core community apart. It needs to be open to everybody, whoever is ready. Thank you for your comments. Your time is now complete. Thank you all. Um, so I want to start with a little chair's um, privilege first by asking staff to respond to the question of off-site consumption. I recognize there's some limitations we're living within that aren't ours, and so I'd just like to give you a chance to respond to that before I make some comments to frame a little bit. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and you're correct that a lot of the limitations that we are living with are not ours. They're the state's. So when we discuss... The, the, the cannabis consumption lounge as being an add-on at the state level, it's not a freestanding permit. It's an attachment to something that's already there, which means a retailer. Under state law, they define a cannabis retailer as a storefront dispensary, a delivery, or a micro-business with one of those retail facilities, right, as part of the micro-business. And for those who don't remember, micro-business is three or more different cannabis business types. So the issue that we have with having um, what's been described here, sort of an off-site or freestanding delivery premises, is that uh, under state law, you know, 
a cannabis delivery company has certain regulations on how cannabis is delivered, on access into the cannabis delivery site, right? So only employees can enter into the cannabis delivery premises, no members of the public, which sort of defeats the idea of having that, that open to the public, right, for people who can come in to consume. You have to deliver cannabis in a, in a car, um, which, again, how in the same premises, how does that practically work? You can't do... You know, I mean, we've had situations here in the city where we've really had to work hard with DCC for places where they're, they're on the same premises, they're all fenced in, their buildings next door to each other, their doors are literally four feet away, and they want to just be able to take cannabis out this door and go like this and come back in, just walk it on a, on a dolly around. And, you know, DCC has said no, and we've had to try to work hard to figure out some workarounds there. So a lot of those issues come with the existing regulations around delivery that make it if not impossible, virtually impossible to have a freestanding storefront facility. And so that's where we run into the problems um, with allowing a, a delivery to do that activity. Um, in other jurisdictions where there's not a camp on um, retail, uh, storefront retailers, it's not an issue. We are, we are we're special. We have that cap, and so it does create tension. And we are certainly aware of that, and we understand there are concerns in the community about it. We just don't see a way in talking with our partners at the state how to get there. Um, where DCC currently is, you know, we would have to basically lobby them for changing their regulations because we could, we could allow it at the local level, but then they would be stymied at the state level and not be able to get a state permit, okay. So, which... which does no good for anyone. Um, so we need to work in concert with our state partners to make sure that people can get licensed, both at the state level and the local level. Okay, that's really helpful context, thank you. Um, I'm gonna take a little chair's prerogative I try to only do for items that I hosted, and I did introduce this during our old log process at the council a year ago. Um, so I do wanna take a moment, because I'm interested in this conversation for a few reasons, because I appreciate folks who are worried about the increased presence of cannabis and what that might do um, for young people seeing that. But I also believe that safe spaces are needed, particularly outside of the home, because I also hear that a lot of young people are accessing cannabis through the home. And so what we're talking about today is not the wholesale cannabis industry. We're really talking about purchasing for use on site, not even taking off site. I mean, this is like, because that would then be a dispensary. So we're really talking about like you're purchasing a thing to eat here and leave or smoke here and leave. And so I just want to make sure that I say that because I also want to recognize that the concerns about youth and cannabis I think pretty, I'm pretty confident speaking for everybody on this dais and on the full council concern all of us. Um, no, none of us think that that's okay. I don't think anybody in the industry thinks that's okay. I think we have a real, a lot of work to do to combat that. But if there's one thing that I will say today is that we have a common enemy, which is the illicit market. Um, we have a common enemy with the illicit market. And part of what we're trying to balance here is how do we allow for a, a sustainable legal market at, so that we can effectively stamp out the illicit operators that are still operating and doing things that none of us would think is acceptable. I think in this room, I feel, again, pretty confident saying that. So I will say that as, as, a, as an asthmatic, um, a very serious asthmatic, um, daily medications every day, twice a day for the rest of my life or else I don't breathe, um, I take very seriously the restrictions around smoke exposure. I think that's really important. It is different than wine, right? I know a lot of people make comparisons to wine. If I'm drinking a glass of wine, it doesn't affect the people around me, but if I'm smoking, it does. Um, and I want to make clear that, you know, I 
support like having access to spaces that are not do not have smoke. And that's why I avoid spaces where I know that smoke is happening. I don't go to cigar lounges. I don't go to casinos. I support our tribes wholeheartedly, but I don't go to casinos because I know people are smoking there and I know that that won't be good for me. Um, I also am a renter, as many of you have heard before, and so legally it is not allowed not only for me to smoke in my home, but to consume um, any edible. And I've been very open on this committee and in public about the fact that my dad, at the end of his life, um, used cannabis. Um, he smoked cannabis. Um, it was the only way that he was able, really, to eat or function um, for that last few months, um, and that's the, and that was what worked better for him. He didn't like the edibles. He didn't like you know some of that other stuff. He wanted like the smoking is what worked best for him. And so to think about somebody in a situation particularly when they have medical needs and their options are narcotics, which I'm not supportive of, or and are highly addictive on their own right, versus being able to safely use cannabis someplace is, is something that I take really seriously and I'm really, really conscious of. Because for me, this is really like a harm reduction approach is how I'm seeing this. I'm seeing this as a way for us to apply all of the same stringent standards, really, that we do for cannabis today, which means no advertising, which means no blanket, no free samples. I know somebody finally mentioned our street, so I will just say that is the event I was talking about earlier. That is not allowed. That will not be allowed. That is not something we are never talking about, someone being able to stand out in the street and offer free samples to anybody who walks by. That's, that is not okay, and, and appropriate actions are being taken to ensure that that does not happen in that space again. So I guess I just want to make sure that we're using a data-based approach here, and we're using an evidence-based approach. And like, I'm really compelled by the evidence, Davina, that you presented. That like the other cities that have been doing this, frankly, for a while. I mean, this isn't brand new. And the cities you went to haven't seen an uptick in incidents. They're not seeing an uptick in, in, in all these things. And I think we can really learn from that and adapt it to meet the needs of Sacramento's market in a really compelling way. And so I will say, first of all, as I said at the beginning, very supportive when this comes back of us thinking about a panel. And I know, Davina, you and I have talked about a public health panel. This isn't what the city does. I appreciate people recognizing that. How do we bring in a panel so that the Law and Ledge Committee and the full council can be fully informed about what's happening um, in other cities across the state and what the data shows us? Um, I am supportive of limited event permits as a pilot program. I'd like to start by saying here's a number, um, and I want to propose that to my colleagues. Here's a number that we'll try. Um, I would like to see if we could connect that to local permit holders. Um, I'm very sensitive to the comments about large corporations coming in and kind of gobbling up permits. I really want, if we're going to do a pilot, I'd like it to be connected. <laughs> okay, I would love to get done before our next committee meeting um, starts. Um, I will make a note as well to the commenter about Discovery Park, and just to make super clear, Discovery Park is the county of Sacramento's jurisdiction, so even when we do this, Discovery Park will still be subject to different county rules. So if you're seeing something happening at the county parks, Go talk to the Board of Supervisors. Um, I am also supportive of lounges connected to the degree that we can under the law. And this is something that I would love for us to continue talking about with the state um, regulatory entity. I do think they need to be attached to someone with an existing permit of some kind because I think that there are security measures and, and precautions and things that are being put in place that you have to do when you become a permit holder that I think are important and anybody coming in off the street doesn't do that automatically. And I just think it's important that we think about within the state law 
how do we push that boundary? Um, does someone have to go out of the door, sit in the car, come out of the car, go into the door? I don't know. Um, but that seems kind of weird. But I, I think I'm curious to hear back what we think the state would allow us to do. And I will say that even within those restrictions, we're also talking about events, right? We're also talking about the one-offs. And so if it ends up that within the state rules, we can't talk about um, further beyond retail storefronts. We can think about what does events, what do those permit processes look like? Um, so I just want to make sure that the other permit holders that are concerned about that recognize that that's something that I think we could do. Um, and then my final point is that I'm supportive of priority for core permit holders, but I am not supportive of only core permit holders. And the only reason is um, I know many, many medical consumers who have their storefront that they have been working with for years, um, long before it was regulated rec recreationally, long before core permit holders. And I don't want to force them to have to change locations to be able to use this. Um, again, medical is something that I'm very, very cognizant of. Um, and so I just want to make sure that we're taking all the best practices we've learned from advertising and, and how we do that in our permit space now and applying this and bringing back something that is thoughtfully in the middle. I don't think we should just go full bore on the events. I think we should try to figure out what we can do to curtail and really test out what that looks like as someone who has a lot of events in my district. Um, I could imagine if there was 100 events at Cesar Chavez Park like every other weekend that my neighbors around here are going to be like, yo, um, like let's balance this. So um, I think that's something we could really work on. So um, thank you, colleagues, for giving me the opportunity to give you some of my thoughts of where I'm at. And again, this is a receive and provide direction too, so there is no motion today. But um, we will now go to Councilmember Kaplan, who's next in the queue. Go ahead. Um, somehow, Councilmember Guerra stepped out and got out of line. Oh, I think uh -huh. he unselected and selected. All right. Uh, well, right well, well, we'll all get a chance to speak. We, okay. All right. <laughs> all right. um, thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, uh, many of you I have not had the opportunity to see or say hi to. I am a new council member and represent North Natomas in District 1. Um, but I am a child of the 80s. I grew up in Oregon. Um, I grew up with the war on drugs. And I got to tell you, I'm the only mom on the council. Y'all remember what it's like to be a teenager? I am also a former school board member with over 20 years of service. So while I think it's important that, uh, like the chair said and has, people have mentioned, we have to acknowledge teenagers are going to do what teenagers are going to do. However, it doesn't mean we take what we have learned in the past in regards to alcohol and tobacco of how do we educate the next generation and acknowledge that there are some public health reasons that we need to look into. But that doesn't mean no because we need to look at it and repair the harm that was done on the war on drugs. And for many in Sacramento who were leading the way, but also have significant criminal charges and records against them because they led the way um, for normalizing marijuana uh, and cannabis use. So um, equity is important. It is time to do something different. I know we have discussed this at the city for over two years. And in that two years, we have gotten a significant amount of information about best practices and things we need to do. But it is also equity that we need to not forget um, for the, those who first got it, our, our medical uh, cannabis users, for medical reasons. We also need to look at this for equity for our apartment. How is it fair that you own a house and you get the privilege, but our apartment dwellers don't, especially in this time and day and age where um, not everyone can afford a house? 
And guess what? It doesn't matter what the law says. People are going to do it. They're going to be in their cars. They're going to be out, out in public. They're going to be at our parks. So how do we do things differently? Um, I, I am of mind that um, the answer is yes. The yes to social consumption events. But I believe that we need to um, learn from best practices and, and, and do where it is a priority for small. I am not about saying yes and big companies come in who can provide it. Because we have to take a step back and look at equity. What are we doing and how do we do it in an equitable way? Um, I am mindful that we need to look at our current restrictions of our zoning. How do we do it um, being mindful and maybe that the, the area of sensitive uses when we do outside uh, social consumption events, there, there is a greater space um, that, that maybe we find where specific areas that best works. Um, and again, I am, I am of mind that um, Sacramento is not the first. We like to be the first, but we're not the first. Um, what are best practices we've learned from different jurisdictions, and not just in California, but Oregon and Washington and Denver, who have done this before. Um, we can learn from out of state, and we can learn from many experts who are here in this audience um, that, you know, I hope reach out to Davina. Because here's the thing I will tell you. You guys, and reach out to us, CCS. If, if, you, if you don't feel that your voice is being heard, here's what's most important. Don't, don't just wait till today. Get a hold of us. Get a hold of us. You know. Get a hold of us. And remember, you may, you, may have, you may have talked to other people. I'm new. I'm, what, nine months, ten months on the job? So um, my, my office is open on consumption lounges. Um, the, the answer is yes. Um, I want to look at, um, I think it's very wise that we look at best practices that, um, and, I've, and I've heard uh, the balance of how can we do this without fully limiting it? Are there ways to do it where it's, you don't just limit it to those who have a storefront? Is that possible? Is it, is it anywhere else in California or other jurisdictions where, where do those best practices um, exist? I think it's really important. The one thing I am, I am huge on is we know best practices. Vegas has figured this out on HVAC and ventilation. We need to make sure that we are mindful for as high as a standard as possible. We learned through the pandemic, you know, we know what, HEP, HEP 14, what the highest filter standards are. I'm sure Vegas even has them higher than that. Um, so that we protect employees. I believe in choice, but we also know that there are certain dangers if there is long-term exposure. So how do we balance that, giving people free will, um, but doing that? The same with, with signages and advertising. Just like we don't allow our storefronts, this is not something, you know, people are gonna find it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not worried about that. But, um, but I also believe, you know, when we take this opportunity that as we, as we look at this and move forward, what are signages and requirements that need to be inside lounges of the harmful effects, you know, or encouraging pregnant women not to, so that that is available. And I also believe um, 
there should be training for bud tenders um, and to make sure that the, the owner and staff at consumption lounges understand how to recognize the dangers, especially how to recognize where they don't deal with it on a daily basis, but somebody who may come in that's intoxicated because that's where uh, issues may occur. Now, um, I am extremely supportive of our core participants, but I also know there is a balance um, and I don't support an RFP process. Um, but that we look at that we look at hybrid, but we also look at because many of you in the audience are small business owners, and that is the bread and butter and backbone of Sacramento is supporting. <laughs> So, so if we move forward, which I hope we do, um, you know, I realize I'm going to tell everybody, government takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Be patient. Consumption. <laughs> um, but I believe uh, on the opportunities for cannabis equity participants, our core, I believe that we should have priority for all of our core members to, to open. And if we need to change zoning to allow for them to, if they do have a storefront, to be able to open something, make it such that we are not adding barriers. But also, um, I am, I'm a believer in supporting small business. And maybe there is a lottery process of a hybrid that all core can have priority in doing this. But we have a lottery of maybe three or four licenses who those who could do it, that it's they pick it out and we can have um, a potential uh, consumption lounge. And it be limited to only those who have one storefront. Not those that came in prior that may have the funding and millions of dollars to do this. I think that's a fair way to balance it. So I know uh, Davina is a staff of one. Realize she's a staff of one right now. She is she is getting uh, an assistant. This is not going to happen quickly, but to the extent that this could be a priority, I think Sacramento has waited long enough for the continuing discussion for it to come back and then have council weigh in. Um, I don't look at this as an economic reason. I look at it as a furtherance of the city's core goal of equity. Um, and supporting small businesses. So to the extent that we can move forward on that, I'm, I'm in. Thank you, um, council member. Um, okay. <laughs> You're making me use the gavel a lot and I hate using the gavel. So <laughs> let's keep it in order here. Um, I, I just wanna carry on because um, I know the planning staff gave us an update on timing for the zoning changes because I'm looking at a couple of folks that I know are sitting in commercial zones that have been waiting a very long time to have that zoning conversation. So definitely, I think, relatable. Um, and also, uh, Councilmember Kaplan reminded me of a point that I was going to make, which is that traditionally zoning has said that they can't be near light rail stations, for instance. So I know one of the points you made was around should we require transit access. I don't think that's practical. Um, I think rather requiring people to offer rides or have different options for taxis or whatever would be more practical. Um, and I just, um, unrelated as well, I think, um, you know, I've started some conversations with UFCW um, informally, um, who's the union who represents several dispensaries and manufacturing employees. Um, I think specifically talking to them, not just about employee protections, but for when someone becomes pregnant, who maybe didn't start the job pregnant, but becomes pregnant while they're on the job, and what protections we might reasonably put in place for that individual um, if they become pregnant while working in a consumption lounge and determine that it's not safe for them um, to be in that job. So, and I have another point, but I'm going to let my other colleagues talk because I've been monopolizing a lot of time. Go ahead, Vice Mayor. 
It's good to be the chair. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, well, first of all, uh, I do want to thank uh, uh, Davina right off the bat. I mean, you have uh, a huge task. Uh, not only in providing the um, the policy research for us, but on top of the the daily operation, we still have an industry that is uh, that is uh, uh, here in our city in every aspect of it, from manufacturing, cultivation, delivery, retail, um, or it's not the case uh, in other places. And so, let me let me start off to that with that point. I mean, it, to my understanding, in the county of Sacramento. Sacramento, the city of Sacramento is still the only place that's doing cultivation, um, manufacturing, retail, distribution, and and uh, and delivery. Is that correct? To my knowledge, we're the only one that does all of that and ha doesn't have the, the caps that or the the sort of RFP process to get a license that you see in a lot of other jurisdictions. And then and then the our neighboring city, probably West Sacramento, is probably the most closest one that's not in the county. Um, they don't do any retail at the moment, do they? No, they don't. Good, good. So, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've watched this entire evolution for a long time, so I want my the folks in, in the audience and many of those that are in my council district to, to take my comments to heart about this, uh, about where, uh, where I'm leading this conversation. Uh, number one, you know, for I do believe that um, those who have invested in Sacramento, whether it's this item or other items, um, and taken the risk and were early adopters, um, you know, they, they should take priority. And that includes uh, the concept of core um, and also, um, and, uh, and I agree, I think it, exclusivity um, has only created problems as well. Uh, but prioritizing uh, is, is not a... Is, is not a um, uh, uh, it's prior setting up priorities for who can apply and when I think is something that we should take into heavy consideration. Uh, I'll first start off saying that I, I have a, I, you know, I still have a lot of sympathy, uh, not even sympathy. It's more of a, a strong understanding and recognition of those who um, have used uh, cannabis as a medical alternative and, um, you know, and, uh, and a supportive alternative of medicine. Uh, you know, I still remember as a young kid, my grandmother had a, you know, a plant called La Gobernadora, which I have no idea what it really is in English or what it is, but it did a lot of, it did a lot of uh, magical things. So, you know, and uh, in retrospect, I, I regret not having those conversations with, uh, with my grandmother. So I, I appreciate that, and I, think, I do think that we need to always take in mind that back in, I think it was Prop 16, I, I think it was in, in college at the time when the, that was first passed, and it was um, helping those who you know, uh, modern medicine could not assist. And, um, and so I think that's a, that, that should be centered point. But so, and, uh, and the other things we should learn from the mistakes of what happened with the green rush early on, um, uh, seeing all of those with money capital being able to jump in and then squeeze out a lot of the small business owners creating inflated prices, uh, unrealistic market. I think all of those things have to be prioritized in whatever we do moving forward, whether it's this item or other items. Uh, the zoning issue had be, has become a, a significant one. Uh, so I think just for all other purposes, we, we should look at the zoning for other parts of the uh, supply chain. Um, but I still want everyone to come back to, uh, I think, the fundamental uh, concern that I have here. 
And that's when I hear from um, the Native American Health Center, and I had a very long conversation with Britta Guerrero about this, who no one has ever told me they oppose, you know, the legalization of cannabis. Uh, when I hear the comments from um, Native American dads today and the Native American sister circles, public health advocates, and then I reflect back on the time that my mother, uh, who was uh, um, early on in the early inceptions, part of Promotoras de Salud, and Promotoras have done a lot to address the issues of impacts of uh, air quality. And my time on the Air District now, having chaired it for five years now, I'm on the California Air Resources Board. Um, I have now taken much more thought into the impacts of, of what, uh, what particulates do, uh, do to uh, not just young kids and the development uh, of their lungs, uh, the elderly that are around us, but um, folks like, you know, I appreciate you exp expressing your concerns, your personal concerns for that. And to me, that's a fundamental point. I remember still the commercials, and I still remember going to Sizzlers, where there was a smoking section and non-smoking section. You know, and I was at our street giving a conversation, and I, 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 you know, happened to smell a lot of it too. And I, to me, I, those are those concerns that I, I, I go back to. And the recent study that came out from the University of San Francisco about consumption lounges and the increased particulate numbers, and what they have found, those are alarming. And I think we need to take that extremely seriously if the city is going to do anything in moving forward on consumption lounges uh, or even open air um, uh, events. The Cal Expo, I think there are, we heard the concerns here, both from a fairness to local businesses and who came in and who those with big money to be able to put on an event, I think was a mistake. And, uh, and it had, and it had uh, un, uh, unfortunate consequences because of it. So I do think that uh, the, the Cal Expo option, um, you know, is a, is, is a non-starter completely. Uh, but I have strong hesitations for even smaller open-air ones. And I agree with the council member, with our, our chair here, that, um, that if, if this, uh, what was happening at our street is continuing, then we need to make sure we're enforcing that. Uh, we need to make sure that we're enforcing that for those who are permit holders for not only retail and current delivery, but that, that, that should not occur uh, at all. Uh, so in, uh, where do we go from here? This is provide common and direction. Uh, uh, I'm not for moving forward at this point, not until we have a full public forum, not until we have our local county health experts that would be on the ground, obviously we want our state health experts involved, but the county health experts who would be involved in this, um, because of, of that main issue. Uh, it's not so much, I mean, the, the voters have spoken that they wanted to, they approved, approved and supported legalizing an entity to put an end to the war on drugs. But let's not forget what decades of work we've done to address particulate matter that's affected people who are workers, people who have secondhand smoke, uh, and, uh, and the work we've done to educate folks about how even vaping has that problem. Most recently on the city council, we took a, a very aggressive action to go after um, the uh, flavor tobacco industry uh, because of that. Not only were they particularly targeting, you know, uh, black and Latino communities, uh, but the, it was using different tools, even the, the vaping part of it, to, to do that. 
And we took an affirmative approach that led to not only the county uh, addressing these issues, but now state law. And the voters ratified that. So I just don't want us to, and you know, nicotine and tobacco are two different substances, but particulates are particulates, which is why we've done so much more to address our air quality and, and the effects of, uh, of it to lungs. So from this one council member's point of view, this is I'm only one vote, uh, who's been involved in uh, you know, figuring out how we, we comply with what the state voters have, have given us, uh, I don't think we're in a good spot, particularly given the information that I've seen um, coming out of for the uh, University of California, San Francisco's um, Medical Health Institute, and, and something that they cited from the National Institute of, uh, of Standards about our ability to filter products to that level, that, that there's no safe exposure levels. And I would, you know, I'd reach out to our air pollution control officer here and ask, are there safe exposure levels? So are there, are folks using out on the street? Are they using at Cesar Chavez Park? Could they be using at home? Well, would someone go to a cannabis lounge and decide never to use at home and expose to other people's? I don't know if those answers are, 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 are um, you know, yes, they, are, they would only go to a cannabis lounge. And uh, to me, that, I think, is the, the concern that we should really take moving forward. Um, again, I'm only one vote, but um, I can't, that, that to me is the fundamental concern that I have when it comes to the issue of exposure to secondhand smoke. So. All right. Um, all right. Um, so I just want to um, please, uh, we're almost, we're so close to being done here, everybody. Um, and I just want to announce for the folks who are here for the PMPE meeting, um, we are obviously running late. This is not PMPE, this is Law and Ledge. Um, the chair of PMPE has asked me to let you all know that you, we might not start till closer to 2.30, since two of us have been sitting up here since 11 and would love to eat something um, before we start. It'll go much better if we eat a little something. Um, all right, so moving on now to the vice chair, uh, Rick Jennings. Thank you, Chair. Thank, thank you, Chair. Um, I'm not going to repeat anything that's been said, I, I hope. But, Davina, um, really great presentation. A lot of wonderful information. Um, helps me tremendously to learn from San Francisco, Oakland, Palm Springs, Coachella, West Hollywood, and Desert Hot Springs, and what they learn, what, what you learn from those, those uh, places. And you gave us a lot of information. One of the things that I needed to know is whether or not from law enforcement, from crime statistics, did we go in and get that information as it relates to the lounges? So to the cities that we went to, um, we asked the regulators there if they had experienced any rises in impaired driving specifically. Um, and without exception, all of them told me that they were not aware of any. Now, we did not specifically ask them to provide us with statistics from their police department. Um, but uh, I know in West Hollywood, we spoke with the assistant city manager. In um, Palm Springs, we spoke with their cannabis regulator. Um, you know, in, in, in um, San Francisco, we spoke to both their, um, their cannabis regulating team as well as their environmental health team. Um, in Oakland, we spoke with their cannabis regulator. Um, so we, we can certainly go back and specifically ask that question and try to get some data from their police departments, but they were not aware. The regulators we spoke to and the assistant city managers we spoke to were not aware of that. Yeah, that's, that's just a missing piece for me, and, and I need to know that information because I think it helps me to understand 
Number one, I, I don't think having just one place um, to publicly smoke uh, at Cal Expo, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the right call. Um, I think there were three events that took place there um, in whatever period of time. My understanding is it's too expensive. Uh, you can't get enough people there in order to be able to do it. Um, so when I look at that, to me, you have cannabis that's legal, but you don't have a place to consume. And so, I mean, that's simple math, and you can't afford to go to the place where consumption is allowed. So that takes me to the lounges and saying, you know, even though I want to go slow, I would like a pilot program for the lounges. And when I, when I say a pilot program, I mean, I w I'm talking about where we can take all the different things that we learn, the time limits, the warning signs, the outdoor consumption areas, the frosted glass, the video games, the room, small rooms, the consumption areas that were glassed off, the HV system that allowed uh, uh, not to be able to smell the, the burnt cannabis, the food offerings, the art galleries, all the things that we learned from that I'm, I'm talking about a pilot program that allows us to incorporate that here in the capital city of Sacramento. Let's go. So that's just my first direction. My second direction is just based on education. Um, and I think we have to focus on education for our youth, our parents, and our educators. We, ha we have to focus on the education of our kids they're going to try to consume. They're going to do what their parents are doing. Even though their parents think they're hiding it from the kids, you can't hide it from your kids. And I think we all know that. Um, and so kids end up following in the same direction. And when they do, they, they don't have the same amount of education that we have. So we have to do a, a, an extensive program on education for our youth, our parents, and our educators so that it's not only in the home, but it's also in the school, and it's also in the community-based organizations. And it's also... Um, in everywhere where you actually buy the products. And so I think the education system is really important to bring up. So the pilot program, the education system, also um, uh, the information from the public health organizations. You know, I think having the same kind of meeting here in a workshop type environment where we can bring the public health organizations in and have this conversation and talk and have both sides here at the table to be able to talk to each other, um, I think that's really something that would be very valuable. There's a lot of expertise in the room. I heard you when you came up and spoke, right? I think that opportunity to bring the health organizations and the cannabis uh, business people together would be something I think would be powerful in having a discussion. Uh, so I definitely want to do that as well. Um, Council has the ability to designate other places where cannabis consumption can occur. So that leads me back to the pilot program. I just wrote that down because I think it's important that we, we provide a level playing field where it can, it can occur. Um, and so I, I just want to make sure I get that in again. Uh, and then the public health panel, education panel, We'll speak on secondhand smoke, impaired driving, employee safety, all the things that are happening that impact um, those who are working in the field and those who are participating in the field as a user. So I'm just looking through my notes to see if there's anything else. 
I could ask a question, Vice Chair, please. while you're looking at your notes. Um, does the pilot apply to events as well or just the lounges? You didn't quite hit events. Right, right now, I, I think if we go slow, we do the lounges first and then we start moving to the events, okay. right? And we just take it a step at a time um, as opposed to trying to do everything at one time and then not doing anything well. So it, just in my opinion, you do one at a time. And I think you have a lot more control over the lounges than you do the events. And um, I, want to, I do want to prioritize the, uh, the core participants. I mean, I, I want to do that. That's something that was very important when we, we put that program in place. I, don't, I always want to be fair to the core participants because of what they've been through. But at the same time, I want to make sure we open it up so that everybody can get a piece of the pie. So that, that might seem like a contradiction, but I do think there was uh, one of the things that I could tap that said, you know, I want everybody to, to play, but I want to give priority to the core participants. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's all the notes I have. So if not, you can call me and I'll let you know one on one. Like later. Oh, sorry. I accidentally muted him. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I actually muted you a little early there. Um, yeah, I think that there's been a lot of discussion. I do want to cut, circle back to one other point that I forgot to make, because, man, I've talked to a lot of y'all, um, and I appreciate all the input, and I spend a lot of times in dispensaries and talking to people and touring sites and potential lounges. Um, the appropriate liability for operators um, is something that came up early on. I think it was a core stakeholder group about how do we make reasonable expectations of operators, for example, not providing a ride, you know, and someone goes out and gets in a car accident or something like that versus the other side, which is the intentional consent when you walk in. Like, I think it's going to be beyond what we see at bars where it's almost like someone has to sign a form saying, like, I acknowledge so that there's a reasonable level of liability on the operator for what requirements they need to meet versus everything that happens when that person leaves the place. Um, you know, you can't be liable for all of that. And I just want to appreciate that um, distinction that people have made around intentional consent and the education and all the steps that happen when someone walks into a lounge before they ever start to consume so that both the operator and the person consuming are fully aware of what the expectations are and what um, information needs to exist. So we gave you a lot. I took a lot of notes. I saw Lainey has thing on, but I just want to say that took a lot of notes to Vina and so happy to keep meeting. Go ahead, Lainey. <laughs> I just want to clarify, Lainey Milstein, Assistant City Manager, um, what the direction from this committee is because I heard two members say events and consumption. I heard one member say no to everything and I heard one member say consumption and let me clarify and I don't do this to rain on parades right now according to state law we cannot do off-site consumption lounges okay. and until we figure a way around and I'm brainstorming with Davina can we do a special event for three days and do it again but there's a state <laughs> license that you have to apply 30 days before a special event like we're trying here but we cannot uh, we can, it's not a conversation right now. We cannot go around state law. Yeah. Now, we can certainly be ready, willing, and able when state is ready, willing, and able to consider something different. Um, but that has been, we don't want to be ahead. Um, so I need to figure out, because we have a whole bunch of other work piled on as well, what exactly this committee would like back next that. time. 
I appreciate you saying that, and I'll ask, um, look at Councilmember Kaplan as well. I heard the vice chair talk about a pilot for lounges and then moving to events. I would be comfortable with that to start. I don't know if that's if the council member feels strongly, because the option would be, you know, we do it for a certain amount of time and then if we're like, hey, this is working fine, we haven't had any issues that we could consider. So on, so I know it's two issues. State law, I think it's staff pay prepared and up to date on best practices. Yeah, the when the time can, comes, yeah. come back to us where that can do. On consumption lounges, I'm ready to go. I don't need a pilot yeah. program. But I do want to clarify, I did not say unlimited open everywhere. I did say priority core and look at maybe three or four that start it and then open up to the rest. So Okay, so it's... I'm going to try to summarize, if I can, because I think we're saying similar things. And I know um, Councilmember Kaplan and I are in a much different spot where we're like, yeah, let's go. But we want to respect that we have colleagues, not just here, but probably on the full council, who are going to be like, whoa, wait a minute. Um, we're talking about starting with a certain number to start. Um, to a pilot, and it's call it pilot, call it start with a certain number. But then a, a reassess, and we can set a date certain for like, okay, after this many months, we're going to come back. We're going to hear from Davina. We're going to hear from PD. We're going to hear about what might may or may not be going on. And then we can decide to expand further. So, so here's what our plan will be, is that we will um, bring back an ordinance yes. that authorizes some form of social consumption consistent with what state law allows. Yes. It will include subtype of prioritization with an opportunity over time to phase in others um, and include feedback for you uh, from public safety of the communities that have already done this as well as a public health type component. of a, And that would come back as part of the ordinance consideration to move something to council. Public Work. education component. Yes, right. yep. and then public education as well in terms of ramping up. I know we do a lot on youth okay. intervention um, and already, but I think that what we're hearing today from the public health providers clearly shows that there's more to be done. So I, I just want to be clear on the pilot because yeah. I just thought about this, so it gives me a little bit more clarity. When we can make sure that it is equally in all of our districts, mm. that it doesn't dominate to one district, so to the degree that we can, that we can make sure that it's geographically, geographically open in, in, in each one of our districts to the, degree, to the degree that we can. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, the audience concurs. Um, <laughs> um, so yes, I don't think I looked at Councilmember Kaplan. We're both nodding our heads. That seems fair. Um, I think we all have participants in our districts who would love to be considered. Um, so, all right, is that clear as mud for you all, as staff? Okay, awesome. Uh, all right, so that is it for item six. Um, I will say before everybody starts talking and leaving, we do have a time for people who have comments off the agenda. No, nothing's. Oh, it's a special. Never mind. We don't have any of that. All right, so we're adjourned. Thank you, y'all. Anybody still in the audience? PMPE at 2.30. Next committee.